on Gender and the Soul, an exploration of sex slash gender and its relation to the soul according to the Church Fathers by Benjamin Cabe, published by Theoria TV. Preface There have been a variety of publications detailing the dangers of gender ideology since the initial conception of this work in 2017. Although my work here is primarily geared towards a Christian audience and how our anthropological model precludes us from affirming any form of internal self-defined gender identity distinct from biological sex, I thought it important to provide a brief summary of other important publications below. In 2018, Dr. Lisa Littman published a study revealing a major demographic shift in trans-identifying individuals. A key aspect of her research focuses on how gender ideology is affecting young, adolescent girls, most of whom had shown no evidence of gender dysphoria up until their proclamation of identifying as transgender. She termed this phenomenon Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, ROGD. Other studies soon appeared in academia purporting to demonstrate that gender-affirming care, the practice of providing puberty blockers, hormone replacement and so on, significantly improved mental health in adolescence. These studies have since been retracted. Ryan T. Anderson made headlines when his 2018 book, When Harry Became Sally, was removed and subsequently banned from Amazon's online store. For his part, Anderson argues that transitioning does not actually solve the issues plaguing the individuals that transitioned in the first place, and claiming that it does is both inaccurate and dangerous. Building on Littman's research, American journalist Abigail Schreier published Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters in 2020, a chilling book that details the epidemic of ROGD in the United States. Likewise, in 2021, Canadian neuroscientist Dr. Deborah So published The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths. About sex and identity in our society, wherein she claims that the ideology produced by transgender activists has no foundation in science. British philosopher Kathleen Stock brilliantly explores the claims of transgender activists in her 2021 book, Material Girls. In 2022, British journalist Helen Joyce followed suit with her book appropriately titled Trans. To varying degrees, each of these works relate the same thing. The rise of trans-identifying kids is a psychogenic disease or social contagion, just like anorexia nervosa, repressed memory syndrome, dissociative identity disorder, ETL, See Crazy Like Us by Ethan Waters. Drawing upon 11-plus international studies, they demonstrate that every single long-term study involving children who are uncomfortable with their sex shows that over 80-plus percent resolved after puberty, called desisting. This was termed the wait-and-see approach, which is advocated for by Dr. Kenneth Zucker, among others. Conversely, virtually all of the adolescents that socially transitioned and were put on puberty blockers, the effects of which it is claimed are completely reversible, they are not, later continued to medical transition. 
more than is admitted by the media, later regretted it. So and Joyce speak of autogenophilia and its relation to the gender confusion in men, and both believe that the popularity of transgenderism is more or less homophic, that is, young men or women who are gender non-conforming and would normally grow into gay adult men or adult butch lesbians, are sold the idea that they are the actually the opposite sex, or they seek transition because of cultural variables where being a straight trans man or woman is preferable to being gay. Dr. So backs this claim with brain scans of heterosexual women, heterosexual men, homosexual men, and trans-identifying biological men. The latter two are virtually identical. Interestingly, Littman, Schreer, So, Stock, and Joyce are all classic liberals. They have always been supportive of women's rights and same-sex marriage. For her part, Dr. So was even a regular contributor to Playboy magazine. But something about the social dimension of gender ideology gave them pause. This pause led to research, which led to their publications. In spite of being politically left of the aisle, each of these women was severely criticized, defamed, and demeaned in an attempt to silence them. This attempt to silence opposing views points to a larger shift that happened in society that Greg Lukianoff began seeing on college campuses in 2013. Publications are no longer rebutted in normal academic dialogue, as Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff note in The Coddling of the American Mind. Rather, there is a push to silence them entirely. There is much that could be said to tie together Haidt and Lukianoff's work, the work of Ethan Waters, and more recently, Dr. Carl Truman's and Dr. Jordan Peterson's work with the aforementioned work on gender ideology. Presently, I am beginning to weave these threads together in forthcoming talks and journal articles, and perhaps, if it gains traction, another book. One last book I will highlight, which is also a documentary on Daily Wire Plus, is What is a Woman? by Matt Walsh. This book, together with all of the other books and studies, form a compelling amalgam of reasons why gender ideology is dangerous for our children and our society. While most of the work to this end comes from a medical, social, familial, governmental and psychological perspective, there has not been a lot of conversation around the topic of theological anthropology. That is what the present work is about. However, we should distinguish between those suffering from persistent gender dysphoria or early-onset gender dysphoria, previously gender identity disorder, from those wrapped up in the social contagion, ROGD. The former is a tiny population, predominantly male, that shows signs of this in childhood all the way through puberty and later in adulthood. The latter show signs of this only immediately preceding their social pronouncement of being transgender. Both gender dysphoria and general confusion over one's identity, as is common in adolescence, are painful realities. However, the gender dysphoria that I speak about in this book, as I relate pastoral care, is of the former kind persistent gender dysphoria, not the latter, ROGD. The two are different and require different solutions. What concerns us in this book is the general claim that a man 
can be a woman on the inside or vice versa. I hope and pray that this book is helpful to Christians seeking to understand the human person from the perspective of theological anthropology. Since the time of its publication through Fish and Vine Publishing in 2021, the first printing of On Gender and the Soul has sold out. For the opportunities I have had to speak at a variety of places on the topic, conferences, clergy conferences, parishes, universities, I am extremely grateful. Unfortunately, Fish and Vine Publishing, which was started by my friend, to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude, Aaron Alford, on account of whom this work was published and not left in the dustbin of a completed graduate degree, will be closing shop indefinitely. And so at this point, I've decided to make the work available via Amazon Publishing, as I now retain all rights of the published work. I will be continuing to publish articles in academic journals and also maintain detailed research on my personal substack. If you would like to stay up to date on my academic and theological work, you can find it here, theoriatv.substack.com. What is sex? What is gender? Ask anyone on a college campus today to define sex or gender, and you are bound to get a myriad of different answers. Sex is biological and binary, but gender is personal and exists on a spectrum. Biological sex and gender alike exist on a spectrum, and neither are binary. Sex is something you do and is distinct from biology. Gender is ever-changing and is expressed individually in order to communicate personal identity. What are we to do with such an ever-expanding variety of answers? How do we begin a fruitful discussion on the topic if we do not agree on a definition of terms? And even if we do agree in this regard, how do we communicate in a way that fosters mutual respect and love even in disagreement? These questions cut through the debris that litters the landscape of what has become a socio-religious battleground. Yet an honest appraisal of our biased reactions might reveal that we are unconsciously disinterested in mutual respect or loving disagreement. We may find we do in fact view those who adhere to a stance opposite ours as enemies, and more times than not, we treat them as such. Enemies do not have cordial conversations. They wage war. It is of great importance to me that this work not be used as yet another weapon in what has turned into a modern Christian crusade. There have already been too many casualties. Rather, it should be used by those within the Orthodox Church to understand the topic at hand in order to offer a balm for the souls of those suffering from gender dysphoria. There are two parts to achieving this work of healing. First, the pastor or layman must understand the stance of the church on the given subject. Second, he must be given the tools to help those within his care or sphere of influence. This last part is vital. One cannot accomplish anything in the real world through abstract ideation. The key is in how we act out what we believe. What is contained in these pages is from the worldview of an Orthodox Christian. While an Orthodox Christian is expected to rely on the Church, Scripture, 
and patristic witness to shape our worldview and thus must follow where these lead, many of those we find ourselves interacting with on this subject do not have the same foundation. It would be a grave mistake to believe that we should hold those outside of the Church to the same standards we hold those within it. In the long run, it is far more important to accept human freedom as God accepts human freedom, a reality that will grant space to those around us and could very well lead to life-changing encounters. History of the term sex and gender The meaning conveyed by the signifiers sex and gender have undergone rapid changes over the last decade, but the initial redefinition started much earlier. In the 1960s, John Hopkins Professor of Pediatrics and Medical Psychiatry, John Money, linguistically severed gender from sex by suggesting that the former is seated in social constructs and the latter in biology. This bifurcation of sex from gender facilitated a second division between internal gender and biological sexes in order to explain gender dysphoria, a kind of body dysmorphia wherein one feels dissociation from or incongruence with the physical body over and against their internal identity. Though historical professional psychiatric practice concerning treatment for gender dysphoria focused on helping the client come to accept himself in his embodied form, much of modern practice seeks to transform the body by supplementary or surgical means to conform to one's individual perception of internal identity. The entire conversation is made more difficult when the range of transgender theses are considered. There are two major schools of thought within which there are countless variations. One, what I will call the popular approach, and two, the academic approach. The first is characterized by a kind of dualism between external and internal identities. It inadvertently tends toward a male-female binary, wherein a woman can be born trapped in a male body or vice versa. The second rejects the male-female binary entirely, claiming that human embodiment itself, as well as gender, exists on a spectrum and is fluid. Male and female bodies were developed and solidified by cultural reenactment of gender roles. As culturally deviant gender identities come to be discovered, accepted, expressed, and reiterated, human biology will follow suit. In this view, the sexed body is somewhat irrelevant to gender expression, as its sexual differentiation does not point to an objectively definitive sex, but rather reflects cultural norms. Today, those who proffer transgender ideologies usually demonstrate an admixture of both the popular and the academic approach, claiming that the male-female binary does not exist, but women can be trapped in male bodies or vice versa and must be free to express themselves in a culturally feminine or masculine way. This, of course, further complicates the discussion. So where do we begin in our articulation of a theologically meaningful understanding of sex and gender? Certainly, we could point to the anatomical fact that male and female bodies exist. But not all men behave in culturally masculine ways, and not all women practice the same degree of cultural femininity. Additionally, patristic witness seems to further gender stereotypes by characterizing parts of the soul, 
passions and virtues as masculine or feminine. Liturgical hymnography likewise calls female martyrs manly due to their courage. How are we to understand such gender reversals? In defining our terms here, my proposal is twofold. First, to reconnect the terms sex and gender by admitting biological distinction together with semiological and theological contrasts of the male and female genders, while admitting, secondly, cultural and patriarchal exploitation of the male-female distinction, variance in roles, and the artificial constructs of the pop theologies of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and purity culture. Sex refers to biology in the physical body, and gender includes both the reality of biological sex and how it is manifested in theologically sound embodied action. This is worth briefly drawing out, as much could be lost in translation. It seems undeniable to say that gender, as a social construct specifically, does exist. It is deeply embedded in our culture and in our own unconscious perception. Phrases like, men don't cry and women need protection, are two common stereotypes. Nonetheless, one's performance of these roles, as expected within certain circles, can be psychologically and even physically damaging. To state it another way, what I am saying is that sex refers to the 23rd chromosome pair, DNA written into every cell of the body, and is biologically unchangeable regardless of hormonal replacement or sex reassignment surgery. On the other hand, gender includes more than just biology, as we are culturally conditioned to think of certain jobs, clothes, colours, and even mannerisms as masculine or feminine. Most of these tendencies are automatic, so much so that a conservative evangelical Christian meeting an orthodox priest for the first time might be disturbed to see him with long hair and wearing what looks to be a dress. By theologically sound action, I mean the exercise of human agency in choosing, with all the innumerable choices in life, how to individuate manhood or womanhood in one's own sexed existence in a way that is in concert with the whole of the Christian faith. I would be remiss to make an attempt at penning exactly what that is or means here. Though I admit a distinction between sex and gender with these criteria, sex is biological, gender is embodied choice together with social constructs that attempt to place moral meaning on these choices, I have chosen to use the terms sex and gender interchangeably, namely because the soul is neither sexed nor gendered. This, with all its peculiarities, will be drawn out below. What I will say here is that acceptance of a distinction between biological sex and social gender constructs is not an approval of a distinction between sex and internal gender identity. Simply because a biological male acts in a culturally feminine way does not mean that he is really a female, even if he feels like one. Concerning cultural iterations of gender, I will only say I believe it morally irrelevant if men are homemakers or wear dresses and makeup, or if women hunt, work to support the family, or go to the beach bare-chested. These are cultural stereotypes that, though they may be considered flagrant sins in some contexts, are perfectly acceptable in others. 
Much of the debate has been spent lampooning these culturally gauche decisions instead of getting at the actual point. How do we encourage human beings to thrive in every domain of life? If the goal is to shield our eyes from what scares us or divert our attention from what we would rather not see, then we have already confused our purpose in the world as professing Christians. If we are Christians, our only baseline, and surely our only purpose, in delving into this hot-button topic, is to ascertain whether or not a biological male can claim internal femaleness, or vice versa, as a truthful identity. That is, does it contribute to the purpose of theosis and human thriving? Whether our answer is yes or no, we are accosted by yet another question. Where do we go from here? Chapter 1 The Initial Dispute Sex, Gender, and Christian Anthropology Is the soul gendered? Are the souls of men and the souls of women sexually differentiated? While various answers to this question have found their way into mainstream Christian media over the past few years, the question itself has remained unasked, and the broader implications inherent in our answer to it have been left unconsidered. Recently, it has become clear that even Orthodox Christians are confused on this topic. Because of this, my aim in the present work is to conduct an in-depth study on the subject using as our guides the Holy Scripture, the liturgical life of the Orthodox Church, and the writings of the divinely inspired Fathers, the Saints. Contrary to what many may claim, there is a crystal clear Orthodox position on this question, and when this position is articulated coherently, it casts light in the dark corners of the transgender debate, providing Orthodox Christians with a definitive answer to many of the questions that are now being raised. We need only draw out how this teaching is applicable to the situation we face today in order to outfit Orthodox pastors with the tools they need to provide adequate pastoral care to those who struggle with gender issues. Our goal, then, is to clear away the confusion caused by certain modern theories and certain aspects of current Orthodox scholarship in order to equip Orthodox Christians with the teaching of the Church on this subject of sex-slash-gender. The immediate context of the confusion surrounding this question was made evident to me while I sat in a seminary classroom in the fall of 2017 where it was posed by one of the brothers, Is the Soul Gendered? The class was split, 50-50. Those who proclaimed that the soul must be gendered were concerned about protecting the theological importance of gender. If the soul is not gendered, they argued, then one might also proclaim that gender has no ontological significance, and this could lead one to believe, as some orthodox academics have proclaimed, that human beings become androgynous in the eschaton, which is to say that the body is resurrected without sexual differentiation. Those taking the opposite stance argued that the question itself is flawed because, outside of analogical illustrations, one cannot apply corporeal attributes to an incorporeal reality. They quoted from the Church Fathers to demonstrate their point, noting that even though the soul is sexless, each human being will always have a definite sex, as the human being is made up of body and soul together, not one without the other.
human beings are sexed because they have a body, but the soul itself is sexless, genderless. 1. These brothers inferred that refusing to place sex-slash-gender in the soul does not denigrate it, provided that one holds to an orthodox conception of the body. Sex-slash-gender is important because the body is important, and anyone who professes that man becomes androgynous in heaven is not professing the orthodox position on the resurrection of the flesh. While the sexless soul is and remains the consensus patrum, the idea of an androgynous resurrection is not. After this brief explanation, those taking the latter position thought the question to be settled, with everyone content in following the testimony of the Church Fathers. And thus the class ended. That evening I sent out a few quotations from the Church Fathers to provide the class with reference material for future pastoral ministry, since many of them will likely be dealing with such issues as the next generation of Orthodox priests. But several days later, one of the seminarian brothers emailed a response to the entire class with a quote from Tertullian supporting the position of the gendered soul. This brother argued that it is dangerous to rhetorically separate the soul from the body since the human being is a single unit and the two only part in the unnatural event of biological death. Concerning the reality of the latter, he was apprehensive what the sexlessness of the soul would mean for the interim between biological death and bodily resurrection. Would this mean disembodied souls are androgynous? What would this mean for the souls of the saints? Do they cease to be recognizably male or female? If this is the case, how would we explain their appearances to the faithful or the use of pronouns in hagiography and hymnography? He referenced modern Orthodox academics who use the Father's teaching of the sexlessness of the soul in order to advance their own agenda. It should be noted here that at the time of this writing, some of the only people who make a point to talk about the sexlessness of the soul are those who argue for an androgynous resurrection. Such scholars usually hold up the teachings of St. Gregory, of Nyssa, and St. Maximus, the Confessor, that the human race was divided into male and female as a provision for reproduction in the fallen world, alongside the tenet of the sexless soul in order to support the idea that human beings are resurrected as androgynous beings and remain so in heaven for eternity. According to these scholars, sex has no ontological significance, a claim they make in order to promote a variety of fringe opinions. It bears mentioning that an extension of this brother's fear surrounding the confession that the soul is sexless might be how such a belief relates to the modern transgender debate, although he did not mention this specifically. As it happens, the aforementioned modern argument made by orthodox scholars which denigrates the importance of bodily sex, has been picked up by other Orthodox scholars whose agenda is to see widespread celebration of LGBTQ plus lifestyles within the Orthodox Church. 3. Those familiar with patristic literature, however, will quickly see through these arguments. Surely one can make a case for almost anything if the witness of the Church, the Fathers, and the Scriptures are separated sifted and hand-picked. 
Despite the countless conversations after this initial confrontation, he and I were not ever able to agree about the issue at hand. We agreed to disagree. Though this work has been approved and lauded by several philosophers, theologians and clergy in the two and a half years since its initial completion, I have met many other Orthodox Christians, laymen and academic alike, who have been unable to grasp the vision of patristic anthropology set forth within these pages. There seem to be three principal objections or misunderstandings. One, the human being is a single unit a unified whole, and thus body and soul should not be rhetorically distinguished so sharply, if at all. Two, if the soul is sexless, then the resurrection will be without sexual differentiation. Three, if the soul is sexless, then the disembodied souls that await for the resurrection would be androgynous. Regardless of emphasizing the first point with a few clarifications, rejecting the causal relationship of the second, and explaining the third by the soul's continued relationship with the body even after death through the persistence of the person, there are still many prone to reject the patristic consensus. With regard to the third objection specifically, one is forced to wonder if disembodied souls lose personhood. If not, why is it so difficult to think of the soul as sexless whilst maintaining the persistence of the person in all his or her distinctions, sex and otherwise? Before diving into the patristic literature concerning these topics, I would like to indicate three different degrees of agreement or disagreement we see throughout the various writings of the Church Fathers. On the first level, we see great consistency among the Fathers, both East and West, on topics such as Christ's deity and humanity and so on. This consistency, which we will call the patristic consensus, helps form the foundation for our Church. On the second level, we see what appear to be disagreements between various Fathers on a given subject. But when we take a closer look, these supposed disagreements turn out to be variances in terminology or focus. As an example, this can be seen between St. Athanasius and the Cappadocians. The former uses ousia and hypostasis interchangeably and the latter distinguish between them. Finally, we must admit that within the vast corpus of patristic literature, there are some areas where the fathers do not agree. On this third level, there is a kind of theological boundary within which the faithful find themselves. Occasionally, this boundary which governs acceptable opinion may shrink if the Church finds that certain theological opinions hinder our progress towards the goal set before every human being. Theosis Where the fathers agree on a subject is of great importance for us, where they seem to disagree requires careful investigation, and where they actually disagree requires caution. Regarding the current project, we might think of it this way. The sexlessness of the soul belongs to the first level, the resurrection of sexual differentiation belongs to the second, with the notable exception of St. Gregory of Nyssa, and the belief that sexual differentiation was a post-lapsarian provision for procreation belongs to the third. 
In most of the academic counter-arguments to my thesis I have encountered, this tendency seems to be heavily influenced by how many modern academics have interpreted Nyssa and St. Maximus, though, as I have noted, neither explicitly call the soul sexless. At the risk of belaboring the point, these academics tend to move from patristic consensus to patristic opinion to personal opinion, they move from solid ground, the sexlessness of the soul, to speculative ground that resurrection does not include sexual differentiation via Nyssa following origin. St. Maximus doesn't actually teach this, if one looks closely, to uncharted ground. All of this to say, those most vocal about the sexlessness of the soul tend to argue for a sexless resurrection, while those that speak loudest against the sexlessness of the soul are reacting against the former and take the opposite stance. Let me be clear. All of the fathers who spoke about it agreed that the soul is sexless. None of them believed the human being will be resurrected to androgyny. Seeing some sort of relationship between the sexless soul and a sexless resurrection is simply a mistake of causality, one that lumps in with its argument an appeal against the idea of sexual differentiation as a provision for fallen man. Interestingly enough, the sexlessness of the soul together with an orthodox understanding of the cohesion of the sex person in the resurrection solves all of the issues that concern such reactionaries, including my seminary brother. It also touches on the modern transgender debate by demonstrating that there can be any sex-slash-gender in the inner man, save by analogy or relatedness to the body, or distinction thereof in orthodox Christian anthropology, which renders moot the rhetoric of those seeking the approval of transgender body modification. The foundation of transgender philosophy is the bifurcation of the terms sex and gender, where gender is taken to mean an internal sexual identity distinct from biological sex. Within this separation of gender from sex, some gender theorists proclaim that sex is biological and gender is not. Others claim gender normalizes and manifests itself in biology over time as it is performed in day-to-day -day life an argument that seems to rely heavily on evolutionary anthropology. Either view denigrates the stability or purpose of bodily sex and thus blurs the line between the male-female binary. And such denigration of bodily sex is not an orthodox view. Since the time of the class discussion and this brother's email, I was asked on more than one occasion by some of the other brothers to respond in written form. Because of this request, and because there are no existing works that compile and comment on the Father's teachings concerning this subject specifically, I have endeavoured to do so here. The brother I disagreed with gave me permission to relay the story in text here, for which I am grateful. The completed work was presented in 2019 as my thesis for my Master of Divinity degree at St. Tikon's Orthodox Theological Seminary. Since that time, I presented a paper entitled The Engendered Soul in Apelles and Tertullian at Oxford University for the Dissiate International Patristics Conference in August 2019 in Oxford, England, which was subsequently published in Studia Patristica. In November of the same year, I delivered a talk at St. Tikon's Speaking the Truth in Love conference entitled 
the sexlessness of the soul and the resurrected body, in which I demonstrated that while the sexless soul is the consensus of the fathers, the androgynous resurrection is not, and in fact depends on a specific and disputed reading of Saints Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor. Having mentioned all this, as we progress in this journey, we should hold this in our mind. How we answer this question about the soul not only reveals, but also affects or infects our theology, anthropology, and soteriology. And so, the importance of this issue cannot be overstated. An incorrect belief in this matter not only complicates the conversation between the Church and the modern world, but also leads to an incorrect vision of salvation. To quote Dr. Harry Busalis, The danger of heresy is that it does not work, it does not heal. In order to successfully complete this journey as Orthodox Christians, we must first be willing to give up our individual opinions, those of the third level. For truth does not conform to opinion, but it is up to us to conform our opinion to the truth. We must seize our little ones, that is, our very own thoughts, and take them captive to Christ. Often, our thoughts are not even our own, but are sown into our minds by the evil one with the hope that, given time, they might mature into heresy, the ultimate aim of which is to damn. When our personal opinions are shown to be at odds with the teaching of the Church, we must immediately uproot them. We must seize them in infancy and dash them against the rock of truth before they take root and choke what sprouts of truth and piety we are trying to cultivate. But if we neglect to do this, we will, in the end, be crushed by the truth. Chapter 2 The Soul Throughout History In ancient Greek society, the soul was understood as something that distinguishes a living human body from a corpse. Homeric literature speaks of it as what one risks in battle and loses in death. The warrior who is struck down in battle loses his soul, which is to say, his life. At the time, it was believed that the soul might exist beyond the body in an underworld as a kind of shadow or image of that person, but generally speaking, for Homer, someone's soul comes to mind only when their life is thought by themselves or others to be at risk. It is important to note that Homer never says that anyone does anything in virtue of or with their soul nor does he attribute any activity to the soul of a living person. For Homer, the presence or absence of soul marks out a person's life. It is not otherwise associated with that life, and only human beings are said to have, and to lose, souls. Classical antiquity gave rise to several expansions of this ancient conception on the soul. In the 6th and 5th centuries BC, Everything alive was said to have a soul, though attributes such as courage and pleasure were applied to human souls alone. This development in the connection between the soul and characteristics like boldness and courage marks another turning point whereby the soul comes to be thought of as the source or bearer of moral qualities. In other words, souls themselves were believed to be capable of virtue or vice. Around the same time, actions such as thinking, 
were also attributed to the soul. Further, developments in language and vernacular made possible one more important distinction missing from Homeric Greek, a distinction between body and soul. Plato on the soul This distinction between body and soul allowed Plato to develop his philosophical system, which is largely based in the dichotomy between the sensible, material, and intelligible, immaterial realms. Concerning the soul, which he believed to be an intelligible reality, Plato affirmed that it is separated from the body, which is a sensible reality, at death. But this separation is not to be mourned, for it is the soul's freedom from the prison of the body. Unlike those before him, Plato believed the soul is immortal. This led him to posit that souls necessarily pre-exist the body. They are only embodied because of a kind of pre-cosmic fall in which they have become prey to their own untrained appetites. But because the soul is immortal and the body dies, and because the human race continues to produce embodied souls, these souls exist in a cycle of biological birth, death, and rebirth. For this reason, Plato believed the same number of souls is always in existence. If one takes Plato literally when he speaks of this cycle of rebirth, one might be able to say that if a soul is imprisoned in a man's body in this life, it could be possible for it to be imprisoned in the body of a female or an animal in the next life. Because of Plato's belief that the human being is a soul temporarily trapped in a material body which is evil, we can surmise that he would not believe human beings, as sexless souls, have a fixed gender. Furthermore, while Plato's distant progeny, Plotinus, does take his analogies to mean literal metempsychosis, scholars today are divided on this question. Elaborating on the qualities of the soul, Plato notes that it is invisible, intelligible, and uniform, meaning it does not admit the division into and dispersion of parts. In addition, the soul does not change as the body changes, but even though the soul is without parts, as it is an intelligible reality, he argues that the structure of soul is threefold, rational, appetitive, and spirited. For Plato, the rational aspect is to rule in the soul, and the soul is supposed to rule over the body. All philosophy is directed toward this end, to free the soul from the body, a task that is accomplished when the soul withdraws from the senses. In a dialogue with Glaucon in Book V of the Republic, Plato argues that men and women are both capable of being rulers of the state, something which would later gain him a number of feminist followers. The line of demarcation within the human soul for Plato is not so much in sex as it is in social class. But even the latter variances are not considered by him to be differences of substance. Aristotle on the soul Aristotle followed Plato in claiming that the soul is distinct from and animates the body. He noted, though, that to attain any assured knowledge about the soul is one of the most difficult things in the world. After pointing out that there exist a variety of prevailing opinions concerning the soul, he makes an important distinction between mind, in Greek, nous, and soul, 
but calls this distinction one of substance. For Aristotle, there are three kinds of souls based on capacity which account for the three kinds of life in the world, the nutritive soul, which admits growth and nutrition, the sensible soul, which accounts for movement and perception, and the rational soul, which enables thought and reflection. The first belongs to plants, animals, and human beings. The second only to animals and human beings. The last only to human beings. In contradistinction to Plato, Aristotle did not believe the soul to be a separate substance imprisoned in another, that is, in materiality. Rather, he asserted that the soul constitutes the form of the body. It is the blueprint of potentiality by which the matter of the body is organized and grows into the actuality of a specific human being. Thus, the soul itself is not separable from the body as in Plato's system. While Aristotle is silent on sexual differentiation in De Anima, in Generation of Animals, he postulates that men are conceived when the father's seed is warm and in full form. But as it cools, it becomes less effective, loses form, and subsequently produces what he infamously calls the mutilated male, the female. In this case, it appears the differentiation is one of complete versus incomplete form, the soul, which informs and individuates each male and female. Concerning differentiation of souls specifically, Aristotle sees a distinction between classes as well as among male, female, and child. Calling the souls of children incomplete, Aristotle distinguishes the souls of men and women by inferring that the female form lacks deliberative authority. For Aristotle, this is not a contrariety of essence but of form. Likewise, the distinction of male and female is one of matter. 35. The question that concerns us becomes somewhat trickier when one considers that, for Aristotle, the soul isn't necessarily immortal, and if any part of the soul does persist posthumously, it is only the noose. Consequently, in Aristotle's system, though the soul is the form of the body, it would be difficult to distinguish between souls as male or female. Instead, it seems most in line with Aristotle's thinking to draw the line between the perfect or complete human form or soul, the male, and the imperfect or incomplete form, the female. Comparing Plato and Aristotle's philosophies brings to mind Raphael's famous fresco, The School of Athens, 1509-1511. The central figures are of course the two in question, with Plato pointing up toward the realm of ideas and Aristotle pointing down towards the concrete reality of the world. The soul in Scripture. To say the use of the word soul, in Greek, psyche, in Scripture is complex, would be an understatement, an exhaustive list of all the usages of psyche in Scripture and how it corresponds to St. Paul's usage of nous, the role of the spirit, pneuma, in Greek, specifically in the case of 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where Paul mentions all three, or the various usages of heart, in Greek, cardia, sprinkled across the Old and New Testaments, is beyond the scope of this work. Typically, the use of psyche, in Hebrew, nephesh, 
in the Old Testament is far closer to Homeric than classical usage. When used, it can refer to man as a living being, the man himself, or the mystery of that which animates the body. It descends into a kind of shadow world, or pit, after biological death. However, the reality of man's psyche is not sharply distinguished from the physicality of the body. According to Genesis 9, 4, the psyche of the animal is located in the blood. On account of this, the Jews were prohibited from consuming blood, a command still in effect for Christians today. Thus, within the Old Testament, the word psyche is sometimes simply translated as life or living being and is used for animals and human beings alike. The fact that psyche is applied to both animals and human beings in the Old Testament allows us to appropriate certain aspects of Aristotle's system for the purposes of distinguishing the usages of the word. There is the lower psyche of the animal, which is material, the life in the blood, and there is the higher psyche of the human being, which is not material. For this reason, the human being is distinct from other living things. Even though Christian anthropology was not fully realized until the Incarnation, a dim picture of it appears in the Old Testament with the writings of the prophets and the hope of the faithful. A further indication of the reality of the inner man can be seen in Old Testament usages of heart, belly, or bowels. In Jeremiah 4.19, we see heart, belly, bowels, and soul used in the same verse. I am pained to the depth of my belly and in the senses of my heart. My soul is in great commotion, and my heart is torn asunder. I will not be silent, for my soul hears the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. In Matthew 10.28, Christ makes a distinction between the soul and the body of man. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This points to an important theme. The body and the soul are closely united, and they are created at the same time, but they are not the same. After the resurrection, the writers of the New Testament use a variety of terms to describe certain aspects of the inner man, including soul, mind, heart, spirit, and the like. The difficulty lies in how these various terms work together. It is not until later that the inner man as a whole is summed up with the term soul. As Father John Romanides points out, there is a difference in terminology between St. Paul and the Fathers. While the language used by the New Testament writers seems somewhat flexible, they hold the same anthropology. They are describing facets of the same reality. Accordingly, the interplay between the terminology used by the New Testament writers themselves and that of the Fathers exists on the second level, described in Chapter 1, seeming disagreement based on language and expression, but substantial consensus given an holistic treatment. Qualities of the soul are variously recounted within the New Testament as a whole. The soul is capable of magnification and exaltation, can be deeply wounded or pierced by pain, and is capable 
of hopeful perseverance. Moreover, it is clear that even though biological life comes to an end and the body returns to the earth, man's soul does not. Biological death is a result of sin, hence the unnatural parting of the soul from the body. However, death is not the end of man, neither is his temporary existence as a disembodied soul. The central tenet of the Christian faith is fixed firmly on the resurrection of the body. Even though the soul exists beyond the life of the body, there will come a time when everyone will be reunited with his body eternally. Concerning the terminological differences between St. Paul and the Church Fathers, Father John Romanides points out, What St. Paul calls the noose is the same as what the Fathers call reason, in Greek, dianoia. When the Apostle Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit, he means what the Fathers mean when they say, I will pray with the noose. He uses the word Spirit to mean what the Fathers refer to as the noose. And by the word noose, he means reason. But we do not know when this change in meaning took place, because we know that some fathers used the same word noose to refer to reason as well as to this noetic energy that descends and functions in the region of the heart. The Church Fathers on the Soul According to St. Gregory Palamas, our soul is a single entity possessing many powers. Although the soul itself is single, simple, and intelligible, that is, not corporeal, the Church Fathers, much like the New Testament writers, used a variety of terms to define its discernible features. In one sense, they echo Aristotle in their distinction between a higher, noetic part of the soul and a lower, passable part. The former is not subject to the senses or passion, but the latter is. Much like Plato, they describe our goal as Christians to subjugate the lower aspects of the soul to the higher. They subdivide the lower soul into that which man can control, such as anger and desire, and that which he cannot, such as life itself and the faculty which admits growth and bodily formation. The latter is called the unreasonable part of the passable soul. It is the lowest part of this trifold division, which should not be confused with the tripartite division that we will speak about shortly, and seems to be the way in which plants might be admitted to have a soul in Aristotle's system. While the fathers do not disagree that plants have life or soul in this vegetative or nutritive sense, some have refuted Aristotle's attribution of the term soul to plants. Palamas goes on to note that the soul is located everywhere in the body because it sustains and animates it, although it is not encompassed or contained by it. St. Gregory of Sinai comments that, although the soul is one and the members of the body are many, the soul sustains them all, giving life and movement to those that can be animated. In this sense, the soul can be said to energize and utilize members of the flesh, using the powers of the brain in order to move towards that which each human being wills. Even though the soul loves the body with which it shares a special bond, it is not itself the body. The fathers accepted Plato's tripartite division of the soul by naming its three principal powers, the appetitive, 
insensitive, and intelligent. This appropriation occurred fairly early in the life of the Church. The first two powers belong to the lower passable soul, and thus to animals also, the last to the higher noetic soul. Even though the intelligent aspect is technically passable, in that it can be dragged down into slavery by the passions of the lower powers when it does not take its proper place as the leader, the fathers place it in the impassable, higher part which differentiates human beings from animals. The spiritual organ, the noose, is the most exalted aspect of man. Located within the higher soul, it is distinct from both the intelligent power and discursive reason or rational thought. In orthodox spirituality, Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlachos colloquially calls the noose the noetic energy of the soul, the essence of the soul he calls the heart. He writes, The heart is the center of man's psychosomatic constitution, a place which is discovered through ascetic practice in a state of grace. And the heart is the center and summation of the three faculties of the soul. Palamas stresses this by noting that the soul of each animal not imbued with intelligence is the life of the body that it animates. It does not possess life as essence, but as activity, whereas the soul of each man is also the life of the body that it animates. But the human soul has life not only as an activity, but also as its essence, since it is self-existent. For it possesses a spiritual and noetic life that is evidently different from the bodies and from what is actuated by the body. For this reason, man was given dominion over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. We might understand this reality in a spiritual sense as well. Man is also called to exercise this God-given dominion over himself in order to tame the beast within, that is, his desire and anger. Failing to do this, the man who is dominated by the passions is compared to the mindless cattle as he is become like unto them. The appetitive aspect is considered the lowest in this tripartite division, the intelligent, the highest, and the insensitive, the middleman, as a kind of enforcement officer for the other two. Per St. Nikita's Stithatos, our insensitive power lies between the appetitive and intelligent aspects of our soul. For both of them, it serves as a weapon, whether it is acting in a way that accords with or is contrary to nature. When our desire and intelligence, in a way that accords with nature, aspire to what is divine, then our insensiveness is for both of them a weapon of righteousness wielded solely against the hissing serpent. But when we fail to act according to nature and direct our desire and intelligence to what is contrary to nature, transferring attention from what is divine to purely human matters, then our insensitive power becomes a weapon of iniquity in the service of sin. St. Nikita's use of according to nature here is telling. Contrary to how the world speaks about the nature of man or what is natural to him, such as the desire for food and sex and the fact of biological death, the saints witness to the fact that our fallen condition is unnatural. Rather, man is in his natural state when the intelligent aspect 
leads the other two. Speaking about the function of the intelligent power in the deiform soul, St. Nikita's comments elsewhere, the first rules the others and is not ruled by them, the second, the insensive power, both rules and is ruled, the third, the appetitive power, does not rule but is ruled. Each of these powers was implanted by God in man for the purpose of helping him attain salvation, theosis. We begin this process when we use the three aspects of the soul fittingly and in accordance with nature as created by God, comments St. Hesychios the priest. We should use our insensive power against our outer self and against Satan. Our desire should be directed towards God and towards holiness. Our intelligence should control our insensive power and our desire with wisdom and skill, regulating them, admonishing them, correcting them, and ruling them as a king rules over his subjects. Such is the natural state of man, the state of Adam in paradise, who was in a state of illumination. But we are called to surpass even this natural state and live above nature, which is theosis. The soul of fallen, impassioned man has become disfigured. The natural order is turned on its head, with the lowest power enslaving the higher. Instead of being inebriated with desire and love for God through the appetitive power, fallen man is inebriated with carnal desire for food, drink, and sex. Rather than using his insensive power to fight against the temptations of the evil one, he fights against his own brethren in order to satisfy his fractious appetites. Within such a soul, the intelligent power is not in its proper place as the natural leader, but is used as a detective to search out paths of pleasure, feed vanity, hold grudges, and justify bad behavior. The result is double-mindedness. The disordered soul is fragmented by an abundance of thoughts and dispersed among created things by its own desires. Instead of looking to heaven, it looks to earth. And this downward gaze admits the entrance of darkness and delusion into the soul. 66. In consequence, the noose ceases to function in the heart, but is likewise dispersed, clouding the window through which man is able to perceive God and spiritual realities directly. In this state, man ceases to find himself in Christ. As a slave to passion, he loses his self to his thoughts and desires. The inevitable end is an identity crisis, an existential dilemma. Man's restoration to health and wholeness requires the purification of each power of the soul, beginning with the appetitive, followed by the insensive, and finally, the intelligent aspect. Then, the noose returns to itself. It descends into the heart, where it makes its abode and maintains watchful guard, in Greek, nepsis. There it has direct contact with God, communicate with divine and spiritual powers, receives divine revelation, and comes into the knowledge of the inner essences of created things, the logoi. This function of the noose is called intellection. Because such functions are peculiar to the noose, the fathers considered rational inquiry as inferior to it. Thus, it is within the depths of his heart 
that man finds and is swept up in God. According to Far John Romanides, noetic activity is an activity essential to the soul. It functions in the brain as the reason. It simultaneously functions in the heart as the noose. In other words, the same organ the noose prays ceaselessly in the heart and simultaneously thinks about mathematical problems, for example, or anything else in the brain. The noose animates or activates thinking in the brain, though it is not itself reason. Summing up the consensus of the fathers up to the 8th century AD, St. John of Damascus, AD 676-749, writes that the first creation, the angels, was of an intelligent essence by reason of their mental and incorporeal nature. Adding the caveat that it is the deity alone in reality that is immaterial and incorporeal, he clarifies that the angels are considered incorporeal in comparison with the denseness of matter. After the angels, God created the materiality of heaven and earth and all the animals to which belong a sensible essence. Seeing the goodness of these creations, it was also fit that there should be a mixture of both kinds of being as a token of still greater wisdom and of the opulence of the divine expenditure as regards natures, to be a sort of connecting link between the visible and the invisible natures. So, he creates with his own hands man of a visible nature and an invisible. It was also fit that there should be a mixture of both kinds of being as a token of still greater wisdom and of the opulence of the divine expenditure as regards natures, to be a sort of connecting link between the visible and the invisible natures. So, he creates with his own hands man of a visible nature and an invisible. The visible part is the material body. The invisible is the thinking soul. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes that the soul exists with a rare and peculiar nature of its own, independently of the body. The body and the soul are made up of two different substances, one intelligible, the other sensible, which together form the one nature of man, wherefore he is called a microcosm of the entire creation, for in himself he bridges the gap between the two creations. On account of this mediation, man is called the priest of creation. His vocation is to live an anaphoristic life in which he offers up himself, and thus all of creation by its recapitulation in himself, to the Creator in a single movement of prayer and thanksgiving. Contrary to Origen's belief in the pre-existence of souls, St. John of Damascus explains that the body and soul were formed at one and the same time, not first the one and then the other. Formed together but distinct from one another, there are pleasures of the soul and pleasures of the body. Even though well-being or illness of the soul can be reflected by the body, the body does not properly participate in the pleasures or passions of the soul, such as pride. Nonetheless, the soul does participate in the pleasures of the body through its fellowship with it. According to St. John, there is not any class of pleasures belonging solely to the body because the body is moved by the will, 
which is a faculty that belongs to the soul. The soul is involved in the passions of the body since it moves and directs it. Having rhetorically dissected the threefoldness of the soul as life and growth, self-directed movement and intellection, its tripartite division into the appetitive, insensive and intelligent powers, and the place and role of the noose. It is important to bear in mind that while all of these are marked by the attributes proper to them, they do not divide the soul into parts, for by its intelligible nature it is single and simple. What we have mentioned concerning the parts of the soul should all be understood as powers or energies. In the words of St. John of Damascus, all the faculties we have already discussed, both those of knowledge and those of life, both the natural and the artificial, are, it is to be noted, called energies. And so, clearly, things that have the same essence have also the same energy, and things that have different natures have also different energies. For no essence can be devoid of natural energy. While certain human beings, such as the saints, have properly ordered and spiritually activated the powers of their soul in a way that causes them to stand out from others, every human being possesses the same powers of the soul, which can be used to progress toward eternal light and life or eternal darkness. That is, all human souls are made up of the same powers or energies, and each human being is capable of activating these for the purpose of theosis. By his choices, man either chooses incorruption or corruption. The saints are saints because they chose to cooperate with the grace of God. Chapter 3 Apelles, the Heretic The overt placement of sexual differentiation within the soul sees its first discernible historical appearance in the writings of a second-century disciple of Marcion named Apelles, who was given the epithet the heretic by Tertullian in order to distinguish him from Apelles, the famous Greek painter. Marcion and Apelles parted ways when the latter forsook the continence of the former by resorting to the company of a woman, after which he withdrew to Alexandria. Years later he returned with another woman, the maiden Philumene, a prophetess who related her revelations to him. Under her influence, Apelles gradually developed his own version of Gnosticism as a sect distinct from its contemporary iterations, becoming the inventor of another heresy greater than that one which he took up from his teacher. Before diving into the teachings of Apelles the heretic, it is important to distinguish him from the three different men with the name Apelles, who are all referenced to varying degrees in the writings of the Church Fathers, Apelles the painter, a famous Greek artist who lived in the 4th century BC. This Apelles was mentioned by Tertullian in Treatise on the Soul, Clement of Alexandria in Exhortation to the Heathen and the Instructor, and Origin in Against Celsus. Considering that Apelles the painter lived in the 4th century BC and that he is clearly referenced in other sources, most explicitly in Pliny, the younger's natural history, it does not take much effort to recognize that he is not the same person as Apelles the heretic. 
St. Apelles the Approved in Christ. Mentioned by St. Paul in Romans 16.10, this Apelles is numbered 28th among the 70 disciples and named Bishop of Smyrna by Pseudo-Hippolytus. St. Nikolai of Zika also numbers him among the 70, but calls him the Bishop of Heraclea in Trachis. In his Panarion, St. Epiphanius of Salamis remarks that Apelles the heretic, the founder of the Apellians, is not the saint who is commended by the Holy Apostle, but another person. Apelles the Smith We know comparatively little about this Apelles, as he is mentioned by Sozomen alone. However, because Sozomen calls him one of the holy men of Egypt, who worked as a smith and performed numerous miracles in the Egyptian monasteries near the city of Achorus, it is important to distinguish between him and Apelles the heretic. Unfortunately, some have already made the error of conflating the two, even though no such connection can be justified. To prove this point, we should note that Sozomen's ecclesiastical history, which covers events from A.D. 324 to around 440, is a continuation of Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, which covers events up to 324 A.D., in Eusebius's account, Apelles the heretic makes an appearance as an old man who has already fallen prey to the prophetess Philumene, whereas in Sozomen's account, the holy man Apelles is said to have been tempted to lechery by the evil one, but resisted. Furthermore, Apelles the heretic is mentioned by early writers such as Origen, attesting to the second century dating. Considering that Sozomen places the holy men of Egypt among whom Apelles the smith is mentioned, in the 4th century, during the conflict between St. Gregory the theologian and Apollinaris, we might reasonably surmise that Eusebius and Sozomen are not speaking about the same Apelles. Sources of Information About Apelles the heretic Apelles the heretic seems to have written many things, including polemics against the Mosaic law, the revelations of his prophetess mistress, and his syllogisms, only of which fragments remain. 16. His teachings are primarily preserved in references made by Tertullian, St. Hippolytus, Origen, and St. Epiphanius of Salamis. St. Cyprian of Carthage notes that Apelles and Philumene were associates, as does St. Jerome, who lists him along with Marcion, Valentinus, and Manes. Rufinus calls him the successor of Marcion, and Origen calls him the celebrated disciple of Marcion, who became the founder of a certain sect. St. Ambrose mentions him as one building strawman against the Old Testament. Rodin, or Rodo, wrote against Apelles, calling him an old man who prides himself on his strict life, while claiming the Old Testament was the work of a false spirit. Eusebius of Caesarea quotes Rodin in his ecclesiastical history, as does St. Jerome in Lives of Illustrious Men. 22. The most adequate modern exposition of Apelles and his beliefs can be found in Katharina Greshat's superb study, Apelles und Hermogenes, Zwei Theologische Lehrer des Zweiten Jahrhunderts, 2000 Brill, 
Throughout her work, she indicates that Apelles was quite cunning in avoiding his teacher's controversial elements when developing his own theological system. While Greshat is the only present-day writer to give Apelles' philosophical system an adequate treatment, she does not endeavor to comment on his idea of the sexually distinct soul. Instead, she repeats Adolf von Harnack's injunction in his famous work on Marcion, Marcion, das Evangelium from Fremden Gott, that this aspect of Apelles' theology should be the focus of further academic analysis. Though infrequently covered elsewhere in modern academia, Apelles is mentioned by German theologian Sebastian Moll in the arch-heretic Marcion, in Adolf von Harnack's History of Dogma, Volume 1, J. Lempriere's Universal Biography, the first volume of J. Quaston's Patrology, and a few other collections about the early Church. Ex-Roman Catholic priest Roger Parvis published an article entitled The Teachings of Apelles, Marcion's Apostate, and in 2008 he published a book entitled A New Look at the Letters of Ignatius of Antioch and other Apellian writings, wherein he claims the letters of St. Ignatius were written by a follower of Apelles, a fringe and unsubstantiated opinion, following a theory first set forward in 1927 by Joseph Turmel. Within these few publications, only Greshat, following Harnack's lead, comments on the idea of the sexually differentiated soul in Filumini, and subsequently Apelles, and only to make a general call for someone to give it special attention. The Teachings of Apelles, the Heretic As a young man under the tutelage of Marcion, Apelles distinguished between what he called the good deity and the demiurge, who made his creations badly. At the beginning of his instruction under his Gnostic teacher, he, like Marcion and Lucian, disparaged all of creation and the Creator, denied the resurrection of the flesh, and allowed salvation only to the soul, claiming that the Lord himself rose again in a phantom body. Thus, Apelles initially confessed, along with Martian, that Christ never took flesh in the first place. In, in his later teachings, however, which were seeded by the persuasion of Philumony, Apelles began to proclaim that Christ did really carry about a body of flesh, not derived to him, however, from birth, but one which he borrowed from the elements, which is to say that Christ did not take flesh from the Virgin, but formed his body by taking portions of it from the substance of the universe, that is, hot and cold and moist and dry. Apelles put it this way, Christ allowed himself to suffer in that very body, was truly crucified and truly buried and truly arose, and showed that very flesh to his own disciples. And he dissolved that very humanity of his, reapportioned its own property to each element, and gave it back, warm to warm, cool to cool, dry to dry, wet to wet. And so, after again separating the body of flesh from himself, he soared away to the heaven from which he had come. In summation, per Apelles's later view, Christ actually took on flesh, but not from the Virgin Mary. Instead, his body was composed of 
side-reel matter. He actually suffered and rose from the dead and even showed himself physically to his disciples. But after all of this, he redistributed his body among the elements and ascended into heaven, bodiless. Apelles further disagreed with Marcion's belief that there are three principles of the universe, the good, the just, and matter. Instead, Apelles claimed there are four, the good, the just, matter, and evil. According to Hippolytus, Apelles believed in five gods, the good being, the creator, a fiery one who was manifested, an evil god, and Christ, who descended from the power above, that is, from the good deity, and that he is the son of that good deity. Bound up with his distaste for the material world is his profession of the pre-existence of souls, for which Tertullian sorrowfully blames Plato, writing that Apelles concluded that our souls were enticed by earthly baits down from their super-celestial abodes by a fiery angel, Israel's God and ours, who then enclosed them firmly within our flesh. Unsurprisingly, the pre-existence of souls and slow dematerialization or redistribution of the body in the teachings of Apelles resembles originism. For his part, Origen tried to claim a middle ground between the Gnostic heretics, among whom he names Apelles, and the Orthodox faith. St. Jerome outlines it in his letter to Pamachius against John of Jerusalem, when then the soul at the command of God lets go of this perishing and feeble body, little by little all things return to their parent substances. Flesh is again absorbed into the earth, the breath is mingled with the air, the moisture returns to the depths, the heat escapes to the ether. It should be pointed out that, for origin, this is not said about the body returning to the earth after biological death, which is a given, but about the resurrected body, which gradually loses its materiality. This view, alongside his profession of the pre-existence of souls, would eventually see Origen posthumously condemned. The editor of the Rudder comments, Origen unwillingly and unwittingly sowed the seed of heresy in the church. He accepted the theory of pre-existence of souls and the assumption that the body is the soul's prison house from which the soul must finally be relieved, denying subsequently the resurrection of the dead, the reunion of members, and sex by which men are distinguished from women. While Apelles took a similar view of the material body, he disagreed with Origen on the matter of sexual differentiation in the eschaton. Having located the sexual differentiation within the pre-existent soul itself, Apelles naturally confessed the sexual differentiation of souls outside the dense material body. He believed that when these pre-existent souls were embodied, they imprinted their sex upon the body like a seal upon wax. In the words of Tertullian, Apelles gives the priority over their bodies to the souls of men and women as he had been taught by Philomena and in consequence makes the flesh, as the later, receive its sex from the soul. In this way, the idea of the gendered or sex soul was born in the second century with the claims of Apelles. Chapter 4 The Church Fathers on Sex-Gender 
and the soul. In this section, we will explore what the Church Fathers, as well as other ancient Christian writers, have to say about sex-slash-gender and the soul, and it is essential we distinguish between the Church Fathers, canonized as saints by the Orthodox Church, and the uncanonized ancient Christian writers. While this issue is inextricably tied to the Father's defense of the resurrection of the body along with the soul and their fight against the idea of the pre-existence of souls, we will by no means cover every Christian writer who wrote to these ends. Instead, we will look only at those who also have something to say about sexual differentiation and specifically how it relates to the soul. First, it is vital to acknowledge that the Church Fathers do not always agree. In fact, sometimes they disagree with one another on big questions. In the first chapter, we termed intercent disagreement the third level of interaction, which forms a theological boundary or realm of permissible opinion. Other times, the Fathers appear to disagree with one another but are actually speaking about the same reality with different language. This is what we called the second level, citing St. Athanasius's flexible usage of ousia and hypostasis and the development of these terms in Cappadocian theology to mean two separate realities. Both St. Athanasius and St. Basil agree theologically, but express it differently. Finally, we defined theological and terminological unity as the first level, when the Church Fathers speak unanimously. Such an agreement, which, persistent over the course of centuries, is used consistently as a foundation upon which to construct arguments, disproving profuse and diverse heretical opinions, and spans epical cultural and geographic diversity, must be acknowledged as an important piece of the theological whole. I use the term theological whole to express a perception with which I suspect most readers will be familiar, the consistency of any given theological tenet with the whole theological system. As one's understanding of the theology develops, one learns to test unfamiliar claims or intimations not only by their own consistency in individual claims, expression, logic, and argument progression, but also by the theological whole. An unconscious application of this is what might be called, in orthodox terms, the acquisition of an orthodox phrenema. This includes experiential knowing, experience of a thing or person by direct contact, existential knowing, our knowledge of being in and living in the world, and our understanding of a seemingly abstract theological system. This is important and will be further addressed as we continue. Nevertheless, the issue of sex-slash-gender and the soul exists on this first level. All the fathers, together with every ancient Christian writer except one, agree. The soul is sexless or genderless. Interestingly, most of the fathers that make the claim of the sexless soul are not doing so in direct refutation of Apelles. Some use it to justify a pastoral analogy, such as St. Jerome, others to make a broader point, such as St. Augustine against Vincentius Victor. Regardless of the motivation of these claims, all of the saints that speak about sex, slash gender, and the soul 
unanimously comment on its sexlessness. But why should we listen to what the saints have to say? Haven't times changed? And aren't there theologians or even ancient writers not included in the hagiography of the church that have claimed otherwise? That the soul is indeed sexually differentiated? Such questions may arise when considering this topic. I mean, many of the saints lived long ago anyway. Don't we know more now? Most of this work, as well as my brief treatment of these questions here, assumes that the reader is at the very least familiar with orthodox epistemology, which can be crudely summarized as experiential knowledge of God that infuses existential knowledge and informs theological expression. That is, the saints are those who have attained theosis. They have come to know God experientially, applied this experience to their lives, and expressed it in their writings. This is where the distinction between saints or fathers and ancient Christian writers comes into play. In Orthodox theology and literature, there is a hierarchy of authority. At the top are the Holy Scriptures, which are composed of documented experiences of God that inform our behavior and theological dogma. Biographies of the saints, as well as their writings, might also be considered documents of this sort because the experience of God that informed the apostles and is open to us today is likewise experienced by the saints. In Orthodox theology, this indescribable experience is called the uncreated light. Unlike the Holy Scriptures, however, within any given saint's writings, elements may be rejected as dogma or corrected by the Church over time. 3. It is with this reality we see the true beauty of the Holy Spirit working in and through the Church's community, and why the Orthodox Church relies on the Confession of Apostles at the Council chronicled in Acts 15.28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Indeed, both the Holy Spirit and the Eus transcends time. And so, two thousand years down the line, we can discern the pattern of the three levels of agreement or disagreement among the saints as described above. Sitting below the Holy Scriptures and the confessions of the saints in this hierarchy are other writings by those not considered saints, either because they fell into heresy or the Church did not see evidence of transfiguration or theosis, the vision of the uncreated light, in their lives. This portion of Christian literature, specifically of the first one thousand years of the Church's history, is what I have called the ancient Christian writers. While the Holy Scriptures themselves are not altered by the Church, erroneous opinions or interpretations of the Holy Scriptures are corrected and called out. We would do well to note that where the saints affirm certain tenets found within an ancient Christian writer's theology, such as the admiration and appropriation of origin found in the Cappadocians, who also condemned his heretical opinions, the ideas of these non-canonized writers are baptized by the Church. Concepts or terms in secular culture appropriated by the saints, such as the Cappadocians' use of philosophical terms to incarnate divine truth, are similarly baptized. Because of this, it is not without great import that every single ancient Christian writer, except one, agrees with the unanimous confession of the Church Fathers on this issue, the soul is sexless slash 
genderless. This one exception is Tertullian. Besides Apelles, it is Tertullian alone among the ancient Christian writers who adheres to the idea of the gendered soul. Like many of the other ancient Christian writers not classed among the Orthodox fathers, Tertullian wrote many important works within which he confesses doctrinal points, such as the concurrent creation of the body and the soul that are affirmed by the witness of the Church Fathers. On issues where he veers into opinions unattested to, in the Fathers, however, the faithful Orthodox Christian is compelled to reject him. Such discernment only requires us to be familiar with what the saints have said in unison on a given subject. It is not a fight we have to fight, it has already been waged by saints. Considering that Tertullian is not a saint, it is important that we take to heart the disagreement between Tertullian and the rest of Christendom on this point when inquiring into the orthodox perspective on sex, gender, and the soul. Furthermore, an unanimous agreement on any topic, the first level, must be acknowledged as the work of the Holy Spirit, the result of an experience of God which constitutes true theology. It is this commonality of experience, the vision of God which constitutes union with Him, and thus knowledge of Him, that leads to the unanimous doctrinal confession of the Church. In other words, the dogma of the Church is based on the saints' experience of God. This experience, rightfully called true knowledge, leads to the knowledge of the inner essences of created things, as St. Maximus explains in his various texts on theology, the divine economy, and virtue and vice. Though it is not my aim to go too far down this rabbit hole, as the excerpts below speak for themselves, I do believe it is important to notice the order of this gnosiology, true, divine knowledge of the creation, including realities such as the soul, begins with experience and communion of God. And yet, when this experiential knowledge is conveyed with human language, it can seem abstract or distant from our lived reality in the world. How many, after all, have looked at the corpus of Christian literature and found it inconsonant with their lived experience or understanding of the world? How many Western Christians, even, have looked at Eastern Christianity and puzzled at what they have called panentheism, that God is everywhere present and fills all things? It should not surprise us, then, that we experience some sort of cognitive dissonance when faced with the Father's teaching of the sexlessness of the soul. Our lived experience is as a single unit, a human being made of body and soul together, not one without the other. And so many of us unconsciously conceive of ourselves as either male or female. It is a fact of our existence. It automatically informs and affects every single movement, decision, and lived experience. To conceive of the soul as sexless seems contrary to this existential truth. But what does the witness of the Church say? Is it possible for us to reconcile, or at least live with, this existential tension? I believe so. And within the pages that follow, I will make some suggestions as to how. Tertullian Tertullian, 
born around 155 AD, wrote his treatise on the soul sometime around the turn of the 3rd century in an attempt to set straight all ancient and modern heresies about the soul, from Plato to Apelles. Stalwart in his opposition to the pre-existence of souls, he pointedly writes that the soul is sown in the womb at the same time as the body. This same confession was echoed by saints throughout history. However, in spite of his orthodoxy on this particular point, Tertullian wanders onto shaky ground when addressing Apelles' understanding of the sexually differentiated soul, claiming that because the soul is not anterior to the body, sex must necessarily belong to both without disjunction. He writes, The soul, being sown in the womb at the same time as the body, receives likewise along with it its sex, and this indeed so simultaneously that neither of the two substances can be alone regarded as the cause of its sex. Explaining in the next sentence the argument he is presenting, Tertullian notes that if there were any interval between the origin of the soul and the body, one might then ascribe an especial sex to one of the substances, owing to the difference in the time of the impregnations so that either the flesh would impress its sex upon the soul or the soul upon the sex. The foundation of Tertullian's argument that the soul and the body originate at the same time stands in contradistinction to Apelles's theory of the pre-existence of souls. But in striking down Apelles's argument, Tertullian follows him methodologically by reasoning through the formula of interval into the questionable territory of theological speculation. He concludes that just as the soul and body are not separated by interval, neither can sex be distinguished as a unique characteristic of either, but belongs to both body and soul alike. It would seem Tertullian's failure to extricate himself from the tricks of Apelles's methodology is at the helm of his theological blunder concerning this question. It should be noted that neither Apelles nor Tertullian distinguished between the sex of the body and the sex of the soul, neither claimed, as many do today, that there can be a discrepancy between the two. Both were claiming in different ways that the external sex-slash-gender of the body is somehow also an internal sex-slash-gender which belongs to the soul. St. Athenagoras, Pseudo-Athenagoras The second-century Athenian philosopher-turned-Christian apologist, St. Athenagoras, born around 133 AD, was assumed to be the author of a work entitled On the Resurrection of the Dead until 1950 when P. Kesseling cast doubt on it. Whether the author is St. Athenagoras or Pseudo-Athenagoras does not concern us here, we will simply refer to him as Athenagoras. On the Resurrection of the Dead contains a poignant defense of the bodily resurrection, the main point being that the resurrection is the catalyst for the reunion of the body and soul, not the inauguration into an eternal, bodiless existence. St. Athenagoras first establishes that man is composed of soul and body, not one without the other. Further, he acknowledges that man needs food and posterity for the preservation of life and future generations, but he requires a judgment 
in order that food and posterity may be according to law. Food and posterity belong to the body and judgment to the soul. Accordingly, man, who is made up of body and soul, becomes accountable for all his actions, and receives for them either reward or punishment. It follows that if man were resurrected as a soul only, without the body which functions in biological life as its partner in righteousness or wickedness, then the judgment at the end of the age is not just and impartial. He writes, Equity is wanting to the judgment if the being is not preserved in existence who practiced righteousness or lawlessness. For that which practiced each of the things in life on which the judgment is passed was man, who is made up of body and soul, not the soul by itself. St. Athanagoras continues this line of thought over the next three chapters, since the whole man, body and soul, receives the injunctions of the law, man must also bear the recompense for the sins committed, and not the soul by itself. Contrasting the laws governing conduct of the soul with those of the body, he writes, God has not enjoined on souls to abstain from things which have no relation to them, such as adultery, murder, theft, rapine, dishonor to parents, and every desire in general that tends to the injury and loss of our neighbors. For neither the command, Honor thy father and thy mother, is adapted to souls alone, since such names are not applicable to them, for souls do not produce souls, so as to appropriate the appellation of father or mother, but men produce men. Nor could the command, Thou shalt not commit adultery ever be properly addressed to souls, or even thought of in such a connection, since the difference of male and female does not exist in them, nor any aptitude for sexual intercourse, nor appetite for it. And where there is no appetite, there can be no intercourse. And where there is no intercourse at all, there can be no legitimate intercourse, namely marriage. And where there is no lawful intercourse, neither can there be unlawful desire of or intercourse with another man's wife, namely adultery. St. Athanagoras is making the point that the body and soul must be resurrected and reunited for the last judgment, since both must receive its just reward for the actions committed. For the most irrational thing of all is this, to impose properly sanctioned laws on men, and then to assign to their souls alone the recompense of their lawful or unlawful deeds. This is the context behind his statement that the difference of male and female does not exist in the soul, a comment he makes as if it is a self-evident tenet of the faith. Both metempsychosis and androgyny after death, then, are revealed to be untenable. Following St. Athenagoras's argument, every human being possesses a particular body and soul. As such, each human being possesses a definite sex which corresponds to their body, because the very same body will be resurrected and reunited with the very same soul in order that the whole man receives his just reward, a person's sex or gender might be considered eternally fixed. Whether one loses a limb in this life to wild beasts or some terrible manufacturing accident, or if one is born without such parts, he will be made whole at the resurrection. 18. 
This also applies to those who undergo sex reconstruction surgeries to remove certain organs. Summary of St. Athenagoras' Argument Man is made of body and soul. Because he has a material body, he has material needs that must be met. This requires him to make choices in order to fulfill his needs in a lawful manner. The act of judging, the faculty of choice or will, corresponds to the soul, but why because the fulfillment of his physical needs is carried out in the body, the whole man must be resurrected to undergo judgment, not the soul alone, for the choices made by the soul that correspond to actions performed through the body are actions that the soul by itself cannot carry out, such as adultery or marital consummation. This means that eight both are responsible because one makes the judgment and the other carries out the deed. The conclusion is that ein each man's soul will be reunited with his very same body in the resurrection, so that the last judgment, which involves the whole man, is just implicit in this argument is that the division of sex is not found in the soul. St. Athenagoras also references the resurrection of the same body. While he and others established a firm case for the bodily resurrection over and against the early Gnostic heresies of the second century, specific interest about the properties of this resurrected body would later concern St. Jerome. St. Jerome at the beginning of the 5th century, St. Jerome received word that his childhood friend, Rufinus, had written calumny about him in a preface to his new translation of Origins on First Principles. This was not their first altercation. A few years prior, St. Epiphanius of Salamis travelled to Jerusalem for a visit, where he preached a homily against the heretical opinions of Origen. As it happened, the bishop there, John of Jerusalem, sympathized with Origen, and was incensed by the spectacle. Rufinus took the side of the bishop, Jerome the side of St. Epiphanius. The subsequent tension caused the initial fissure in their relationship. In defense of his opposition to his own bishop, Jerome wrote a treatise entitled To Pomachius Against John of Jerusalem. Eventually, Rufinus and Jerome reconciled. But at the condemnation of Origen by a council called by Theophilus of Alexandria in AD 400, those holding Originist views were in danger of the same fate. It came as a surprise then when Rufinus made the claim that Jerome was an Originist in his preface to the aforementioned new translation of On First Principles. Upon reading it, however, St. Jerome's friend Pachomius discovered in Rufinus's new translation a softening of Origen's heretical opinions in order to make them more palatable. This was the occasion for St. Jerome's apology. What kind of body will be resurrected? Origen's theological expression of the resurrected body raised several red flags for St. Jerome. During their first squabble over Originism, St. Jerome observes that even though Origen speaks of the resurrection of the body, he does not once introduce the resurrection of the flesh and suspect that he left it out on purpose. In a manner eerily similar to Apelles' opinions, Origen professed that the soul, at the command of God, lets go of this perishing and feeble body, and little by little 
all things return to their parent substances. Flesh is again absorbed into the earth, the breath is mingled with the air, the moisture returns to the depths, the heat escapes to the ether. Like Apelles, Origen confessed the resurrection of the body, but the slow dissolution of the material flesh over time into the four elements. The natural conclusion for Origen, who professed the sexlessness of the soul contra Apelles, would be that man becomes androgynous in heaven. Here, it is crucial to stress that Origen was condemned not only for his articulation of the pre-existence of souls and the apocatastasis, but also for his understanding of the bodily resurrection, which led him to profess eschatological androgyny and immaterial future existence. The faith of the Church, according to Jerome, requires conscious recognition that a resurrection without flesh and bones, without blood and members, is unintelligible. Indeed, a Christian confession of the bodily resurrection requires an affirmation of the resurrection of its members, the flesh, bones, blood, and even sexual organs for where there are flesh and bones, where there are blood and members, there must of necessity be diversity of sex. In St. Jerome's mind, this point is imperative, inasmuch as where there is diversity of sex, there John is John, Mary is Mary. But if human beings become androgynous in heaven, he asks, where would John and Mary be? He presses the topic with the example of Job, commenting that if his self-same flesh is not resurrected in the eschaton, then his bodily sufferings were in vain. If Job is not to rise again in his own sex, if he is not to have the same members which were then lying on the dunghill, if he does not open the same eyes to see God with which he was then looking at the worms, where will Job then be? Thence, in his dispute with John of Jerusalem over the teachings of Origen, St. Jerome asks several pointed questions in order to ascertain where the bishop stands theologically. Can he confess the resurrection of the flesh? Or does he adhere to Origen's understanding of the resurrection of the body and its material disintegration, and thus the dissipation of sex along with it? Several passages of Scripture reference bodily sex in heaven, such as Matthew 22.30 and Galatians 3.28. The former, according to Origen, is a prophecy of androgyny in heaven. St. Jerome commented, When it is said, In that day they shall neither marry, nor be given in marriage. The words refer to those who can marry, and yet will not do so. For no one says of the angels, They shall not marry, nor be given in marriage. I never heard of a marriage being celebrated among the spiritual virtues in heaven, but where there is sex, there you have man and woman. St. Jerome's exegesis here admits that while there will be a distinction of sex in heaven due to the resurrection of fleshly members, resurrected men and women will not marry or be given in marriage, nor will they use their resurrected members for pleasure or the begetting of children. Rather, they will be like the angels in that they will live chastely, just like the virgins who, even before death, lived in their own sex without discharging the functions of sex. He continues, who can have any glory from a life of chastity if we have no sex which would make unchastity possible, 
who ever crowned a stone for continuing a virgin? Likeness to the angels is promised us, that is, the blessedness of their angelic existence without flesh and sex will be bestowed on us in our flesh and with our sex, while this blessedness of future existence will be bestowed on us in our flesh and with our sex, we will not discharge the functions of sex. After all, sex can exist without the functions of the senses, as witnessed to by the life of virgins and monastics on earth. This is the manner in which man is made equal to the angels, for likeness to the angels does not imply a changing of men into angels, but their growth in immortality and glory. Considering his critique of Origen during his first controversy with Rufinus and John of Jerusalem, St. Jerome's astonishment over Rufinus's allegation is not surprising. Suspecting Rufinus of Originism, he demands answers from him in on the question of the resurrection of the body. I want to know whether you hold what Origen denies that the bodies rise with the same sex with which they died, and that Mary will still be Mary and John be John, or whether the sexes will be so mixed and confused that there will be neither man nor woman, but something which is both or neither, and also whether you hold that the bodies remain uncorrupt, sick, and immortal, and, as you acutely suggest, after the Apostle, spiritual bodies forever, and not only the bodies, but the actual flesh, with blood infused into it, and passing by channels through the veins and bones, such flesh as Thomas touched, or that little by little they are dissolved into nothing and reduced into the four elements of which they were compounded. This is the litmus test for St. Jerome. Can Rufinus affirm that all the parts of the flesh will be resurrected, including sexual organs? If not, the charge of originism is inevitable. St. Jerome draws out this point two years later, around 404 AD, in an unrelated letter of consolation addressed to a Christian woman named Eustochius, whose mother, Paula, had recently reposed. In relaying his condolences, he praises Paula for avoiding the traps of the heretics. As he recalls, one of these heretics dangled before her the following sophistries. Will there be a distinction of sexes in the next world, or will there be no such distinction? If the distinction continues, there will be wedlock and sexual intercourse and procreation of children. If, however, it does not continue, the bodies that rise again will not be the same. The aim of this cunning knave, according to St. Jerome, was to prove the pre-existence of souls. To her credit, though, Paula was not deceived by his trickery. Rather, she reported everything to St. Jerome, who pursued discourse with the man in order to trap him in his own wiles. He writes, As to your objection taken from marriage, that, if the members shall remain the same, marriage must inevitably be allowed. It is disposed of by the Saviour's words. Ye do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels. When it is said that they neither marry nor are given in marriage, the distinction of sex is then to persist. For no one says of things which have no capacity for marriage, such as a stick 
or a stone, that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But this may well be said of those who, while they can marry, yet abstain from doing so by their own virtue and by the grace of Christ. But if you cavil at this and say, How shall we in that case be like the angels with whom there is neither male nor female? Hear my answer in brief as follows. What the Lord promises to us is not the nature of angels, but their mode of life and their bliss. And therefore John the Baptist is called an angel even before he is beheaded, and all God's holy men and virgins manifest in themselves, even in this world, the life of angels. When it is said, ye shall be like the angels, likeness only is promised, and not a change of nature. At the man's silence during the interrogation, St. Jerome resoundingly proclaims, If the woman shall not rise again as a woman, nor the man as a man, there will be no resurrection of the dead. For the body is made up of sex and members. But if there shall be no sex and no members, what will become of the resurrection of the body, which cannot exist without sex and members? For St. Jerome, Denying the reality that there will be men and women in heaven is equivalent to denying the resurrection of the body entirely. Ergo, what St. Athanagoras defends, St. Jerome makes even more pointed. One cannot merely affirm the bodily resurrection in name, but must also do so in reality by admitting the resurrection of the parts of the body. Men and women in this life will be raised male and female in the next. It is important to note that this passage, along with the passages in his Apology and to Pamachius against John of Jerusalem, above where he interprets Matthew 22.30, in like manner might be thought of as clarification of his position set forward in against Jovinianus, C. 393, depending on how the latter is read. The passage in question was written to combat Jovinianus's claim that sexual continence is no better than indulgence. Naturally, Jerome harkens back to Matthew 22.30, mentioning that there are two different interpretations on how men become like angels in the next life. If likeness to the angels is promised us, and there is no difference of sex among the angels, we shall either be one of no sex as are the angels, or do at all events which is clearly proved, though we rise from the dead in our own sex, we shall not perform the functions of sex. Given the context, though, it appears clear that in acknowledging that both interpretations exist, St. Jerome is not presenting them as equally correct options. Rather, he uses this either-or statement as a rhetorical tool to demonstrate that the latter is clearly the case. We rise from the dead in our own sex, not the former. Within the work as a whole, he makes a strong argument for the resurrection of all the members of the body, including the genitalia, using the rhetorical technique reductio ad absurdum. In doing so, he is able to make his point to Jovinianus. The virginal life is imitation of the angelic life. It is a way to live an eschatological life, to image the angelic life on earth by retaining sexual organs, unlike the eunuch, and simply not use them. Surely no one would say monastics are angelic in the sense that they are no longer male nor female. 
There is a distinction between nuns and monks, but they do not perform the functions proper to their sex. Thus, there is not much room to claim St. Jerome was presenting two orthodox interpretations of Matthew 22.30, between which the faithful could choose. Even if someone tried to fit these words in his mouth, it must be acknowledged that his stance becomes unavoidably clear in his later works. In the year 400, we see a good example of this. The question of interpretation is not left open, as St. Jerome writes in a letter to Pamachius concerning the chicanery of the heretics. We believe, they say, in the resurrection of the body. This confession, if only it be sincere, is free from objection. But they use the word body instead of the word flesh, in order that an orthodox person hearing them say body may take them to mean flesh, while a heretic will understand that they mean spirit. Thus, while they maintain the resurrection of the body as a whole, they deny the resurrection of its separate members. This clever use of orthodox terminology spun with different meaning is an age-old tactic still used today. St. Jerome's insistence on the resurrection of the members and the existence of sexual differentiation in heaven is made even more poignant by what he has to say about the soul. In a letter to a certain man named Rusticus, who together with his wife, Artemia, made a vow of continence but broke it, St. Jerome reveals that Artemia returned, repented, and now prays for the return of her husband. She draws you to her by her prayers, he writes, that you may be saved, if not by your own exertions, at any rate, by her faith. Seeing her faith, St. Jerome likens Artemia to the woman from Canaan, who entreats Christ to heal her daughter. Within this pastoral analogy, he goes on to call Rusticus's soul the daughter of Artemia. Near the end of this section, he makes the following caveat to support his analogy. Souls are of no sex, therefore I may fairly call your soul the daughter of hers. Beyond the simplicity of this statement, St. Jerome remains silent, as if to say that the sexlessness of the soul requires little explanation. In modern times, the sexlessness of the soul must be drawn out in further detail. Certainly, souls do not have male and female organs, something Vincentius Victor inferred and for which St. Augustine ridiculed him, but neither do they know any substantial difference between the sexes. Twenty-first century pop philosophy would disagree by utilizing the linguistic bifurcation of sex and gender, with the former referring to biology and the latter to internal gender identity. But, as we will see in later sections, such a distinction is not one Orthodox Christians can admit. Summary of St. Jerome For St. Jerome, the key line of demarcation between an Orthodox and heterodox confession of the resurrection is the affirmation that all of the members of the flesh, including genitalia, are resurrected. Denying this reality de facto denies the bodily resurrection because the body is made up of parts, including reproductive organs. If the parts are not raised, St. Jerome asks, how can the body itself be raised? Furthermore, a bodiless or at the very least partless resurrection 
requires the denial of sexual differentiation in the eschaton, as souls are of no sex. Given these points, according to St. Jerome, anyone who avows that human beings are resurrected to androgyny dismembers and renders impotent the entire Christian doctrine of the resurrection. Like St. Athanagoras, St. Jerome comments on the sexlessness of the soul, specifically in a manner that makes it appear to be a self-evident tenet of the faith. Affirming the twofold nature of man, body, and soul, St. Jerome walks the tightrope of the Orthodox Credo by confessing that there will be sexual differentiation in heaven because of the body, but the soul itself is sexless. With respect to this, one might wonder at the role of 1 Corinthians 15.44, which upon first glance seems to complicate the entire question. What does it mean that we will have a spiritual body? While more work could be done to trace the development of patristic thought on this question, the general consensus seems to be that a spiritual body refers to the reality that our bodies will be subject to the spirit, our souls will be correctly ordered with the flesh subject to the higher faculties. By this correct ordering, our bodies are said to be spiritual, though this does not do away with their material quality, per se. That being said, we do put off the corruption which came as a result of the fall, and thus our resurrected bodies with all their members will not be characterized by the coarseness of corruption, but by the lightness of the Spirit. St. Augustine of Hippo Between the years 419 and 420, St. Augustine of Hippo composed four books as a reply to a young man named Vincentius Victor, who had criticized aspects of his earlier writings concerning the soul. These four books are known today by the title On the Soul and Its Origin. One of Victor's main interests concerned how the soul of each human being originates. Are souls individually created by God at the time of conception, or are they all propagated from Adam's soul? Today, this question still divides individuals within Christendom. The first view has come to be called creationism, and the second, traducianism, from the Latin extraduce. Outlining St. Augustine's view of the sexlessness of the soul requires us to analyze certain arguments within this specific debate, so it is worth pointing out that the sexlessness of the soul, as a tenet of the faith, is not tied directly to either of these views. Rather, the sexlessness of the soul is, again, treated, this time by St. Augustine, as a self-evident tenet of the faith, which he first mentions in passing, but later utilizes to back Victor into a corner. While St. Augustine was hesitant to speak on the soul's origin, for which reason Victor condemned him, Victor held unswervingly to the idea that souls are created directly by God. In response, St. Augustine points out that these two views are not mutually exclusive, even though they are often treated as such. If they were, it would imply God is not involved in the creation of the body in the womb. 46 instead, St. Augustine affirms that God is involved in the formation of the body in the womb, and likewise, the soul. All of creation belongs to God but he allows human beings to participate in it.
In brief, the orthodox opinion on this matter seems much closer to what St. Augustine is saying here. It is not either or, but both and. For his part, Victor begins by analyzing the creation of Eve, interpreting Genesis 2.23, which reads, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Victor argued that if all souls were derived from Adam's soul, then, in addition to, This is bone of my bones, Adam should have said, This is soul of my soul, or spirit of my spirit. Because of the way the text reads, though, Victor would assert that Eve only received her flesh from Adam. Responding to this claim, St. Augustine points out that Adam's use of woman in the second half of the verse implies that the whole of Eve, as a woman composed of soul and body, was taken out of Adam, not that she received soulless flesh from him. In making this distinction, St. Augustine notes that the soul is undistinguished by sex, yet when women are mentioned, it is not necessary to regard them apart from the soul. In other words, even though the internal portion of a woman has no sex, the woman herself is not a soulless body, but a human being composed of a female body and a sexless soul. Thus, the title, Woman, refers to the whole person without discrimination. In St. Augustine's argument against Victor's interpretation of Genesis 2.23, the Bishop of Hippo points out that, even though it is the body, not the soul, which is distinguished by sex. When we speak about a particular woman or women generally, we are referring to the whole person, not merely that person's body. The soul itself may be sexless, but each human being has a definite sex by virtue of the body. To put it another way, just as a deceased person's soulless flesh or bodiless soul are not considered by themselves the whole person, calling someone a man or a woman refers to the whole person, not the body's sex alone. After making these points, St. Augustine moves on to comment on Victor's belief in the corporeity of the soul. When God breathed the soul into the body of each man, according to Victor, a new, separate body forms inside of his external flesh. Victor calls this the inner man. However, if this were the case, each man would have multiple bodies, argues St. Augustine, an external body, the body of the soul, and the body of the spirit, which resides within the soul. The absurdities are summarized by St. Augustine in the following manner. As I then understand your statement, you mean the inner man to be the soul, and the inmost one to be the spirit, as if the latter were inferior to the soul, as this is to the body. Whence it comes to pass, that just as the body receives another body pervading its own inner cavity, which, as you suppose, is the soul, so in its turn must the soul be regarded as having its interior emptiness also, where it could receive the third body, even the spirit, and thus the whole man consists of three, the outer, the inner, and the inmost. Now do you not yet perceive what great absurdities follow in your wake when you attempt the asseveration 
that the soul is corporeal. Apparently Victor did not. Instead, he went on to add that if perchance the limbs of the body are cut off, the soul withdraws itself from the stroke, and after condensation retires to other parts, so that no portion of it is amputated with the wound inflicted on the body. But St. Augustine fires back. If indeed the soul can be wounded by those who wound the body, should we not have good reason to fear that it can be killed also by those who kill the body? This, however, is a fate which the Lord himself most plainly declares to be impossible to happen. As it turned out, Victor's apprehension over affirming the incorporeality of the soul involved his belief that incorporeal realities lack form. Hence, an incorporeal soul would be made up only of empty space. Accordingly, disembodied souls would be totally unrecognizable, the implication being that when a human being dies and his formless soul is separated from the form of his body, the person himself would disappear with the disintegration of his bodily form. Since dissipation of the person after death is clearly not a Christian notion, reasons Victor, the incorporeity of the soul must be likewise. To make this point, he cites the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Bodily members are in this parable ascribed to the soul as if it were really a body. So the soul itself must be a body composed of corporeal members. St. Augustine disagrees. It does not follow that if the soul is incorporeal, then it is necessarily formless. In the first place, if that which is bodiless means it is empty space, then God must be empty space. Furthermore, if one cannot be known apart from the form of the body, then mirrors are necessary for any self-reflection. St. Augustine quips, To know yourself, therefore, I imagine that you often stand before your looking-glass, lest by forgetting your features you should be unable to recognize yourself. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man does not prove anything except that disembodied souls will be recognizable. As for so-called proofs of the soul's corporeity, Victor sees in this parable's attribution of a tongue to the rich man and so on, St. Augustine raises a flag of caution. It is important to recognize figurative speech and not take it too literally. Do souls really have tongues? Victor seems to think so. But here again, St. Augustine disagrees. Souls do not have physical tongues, but rather a sense which is spoken of as a tongue for the purposes of providing the reader with an image of this sense. On this point, St. Augustine notes that the physical senses are not the only way people recognize one another. Human relationships are deeper than a catalogue of familiar faces. People are known and thought about by more than their distinct physical qualities. In this way, souls are recognizable not just by corporeal features, but by a different sense which properly belongs to them. Who could rightly say, explains St. Augustine, that he had known any man, except in so far as he has had means of knowing his life and disposition, which have, of course, neither material substance nor colors. While a disembodied soul would certainly think of itself as having a body, according to St. Augustine, 
there is a difference between the corporeal body and the semblance of a body, in Latin, quasi-corpus, which belongs to the soul. Souls have in them the incorporeal semblances of bodies, but they are not themselves bodies. In each soul there can be seen the whole and perfect semblance of your fleshly frame, but it is not itself the flesh, nor can it be spoken of as having corporeal existence for, not every semblance of a body is itself a body. Fall asleep and you will see this, but when you awake again, carefully discern what it is you have seen. For in your dreams you will appear to yourself as if endued with a body. But it really is not your body, but your soul. Nor is it a real body, but the semblance of a body. Within this argument of the semblances of bodies, St. Augustine further critiques Victor's system of thought. Using the Christian precept of the sexlessness of the soul, he shows Victor that his belief in the corporeity of the soul necessarily leads to the denial of its sexlessness. For if the soul received the entire shape of the whole body from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet and from the inmost marrow to the skin's outward surface, as Victor claims, and contains all the distinction of members characteristic of man and woman being no semblance merely of body but actual body, then it cannot be sexless. If your opinion be correct, he writes to Victor, and the soul is a body, even a living body, then it both possesses swelling and pendant breasts and lacks a beard, it has a womb and all the generative organs of a woman, yet is not a woman after all. Showing that he is at odds with himself in this confession, St. Augustine asks, Will not mine, then, be a statement more consistent with the truth? That the soul indeed has an eye and has a tongue, has a finger, and all other members which resemble those of the body, and yet the whole is the semblance of a body, not a body really. St. Augustine shows that if Victor tries to maintain his position on the soul as an internal body, then he must admit its sexual distinction. Victor proclaimed, The soul must have received, in the case of a female body, all the inner appurtenances of a woman's body, and yet not be a woman. But St. Augustine comments indignantly that no example can throughout nature be produced of such a monstrosity as you have imagined, where there is a woman's real and living body, but not a woman's sex. Here, St. Augustine's rhetorical genius comes to fruition as he pressures Victor to admit one of two logically consistent options, either the soul is incorporeal or it is sexed gendered. Both St. Augustine and Victor believe the latter to be ridiculous. St. Augustine puts it this way, If you will not allow that there is sex in the soul, there cannot be a body in the soul either. In other words, if in actual fact the soul is a body exactly conforming to the outer body, then either both are sexually differentiated or neither are. But this is absurd. The body is sexed, but the soul is both bodiless, in the strict sense of physicality as it contains a semblance of a body, and sexless. The eunuch is still male. It appears Victor brings up the symbol of a phoenix to prove his point. 
St. Augustine dismisses this supposed proof without elaborating too much on it, for the phoenix is a symbol of the resurrection of the body, not the corporeity of the soul. Bringing it up does not do away with the contradiction, it does not do away with the sex of souls, inherent to Victor's idea that the soul is an inner body that has grown stiff by congelation. However, this specific passage is important to identify, because one could easily mistake St. Augustine's rhetorical game as a dogmatic profession and attribute to him the belief in the sexed soul. But that is not what he is saying. The passage is certainly difficult, as is the entire work, but it was written in this manner for the sake of a dramatic point. Victor's claims are noticeably laughable. St. Augustine playfully scoffs at Victor, as if to say, What's the big deal, Victor? Why won't you admit that your system of thought leads necessarily to the idea of the gendered soul? If the body is sexed, and the soul is a second body conforming exactly to that of the outer, then it too must possess sexual organs. While one could easily think of St. Augustine as being petulantly pompous in his rebuttal, he felt the tactic necessary. It was not for show nor oratorical flair, but for instruction and confession of the truth. In fact, reflecting on the entire situation some years later, St. Augustine commented, I treated the young man as gently as I could, not as one who ought to be denounced all out of hand, but as one who ought to be still instructed. His playful banter continues then when he investigates the reasons why Victor refuses to admit that the corporeal soul body of a male is male and that of a female is female, as they are moulded to the exact same form as the exterior body. Is it because souls without bodies of flesh would be unable to cohabit, wonders St. Augustine, or that souls never generate? That is, does Victor believe that souls are sexless simply because they do not produce offspring or are not propagated in the tradition sense? Well, then of course mules and she-mules are not male and female, St. Augustine continues, neither are castrated men male, for this deprivation of cohabitation or generation is shared by castrated men. Such a view is outlandish, for even though both the process and the motion be taken from them, e.e., the castrated men, their sex is not removed. He concludes that, in his time at least, nobody ever said that a eunuch is not a male. According to this view, a male will always be male no matter what cosmetic changes he makes, even if he removes his male organs. But as St. Augustine notes, the eunuch is still male. Nobody has ever said differently. Indeed, the fact that amputees and eunuchs alike will be resurrected with all of their members, as both St. Jerome and St. Augustine affirm, is enough to thwart the idea that removal of the male organs is the removal of the man's sex. The male is and always will be male, the female is and always will be female, even medical science affirms this. On a practical level, Christians are called to live eschatologically. We are called to live and participate in the resurrection today. When we do this, we begin to partake of its blessedness, in St. Jerome's words, 
by participating in the life of Christ in the church. To further this point, whether we work out our salvation in the context of marriage, making use of these organs in our earthly state, or as virgins, willfully abstaining for the sake of the Lord, we can live in the eschatological now. This does not do away with bodily sex, though it does transcend it. All who come to the Lord in repentance are welcome at His table. In this sense, there are no divisions of race or sex. God is an equal opportunity employer. The cessation of the divisions caused by these realities in the fallen world, however, does not necessarily mean the cessation of the realities themselves, but rather their fulfillment. From this, we might draw a parallel to those who are suffering with divisions within themselves, namely those who experience a conflict between their biological body and their inner self. In the eschaton, this division, together with the tears shed over it, will be wiped away. The soul and the body will exist as distinct realities, but will no longer be in conflict. Now in union with himself, the person is resurrected to wholeness of soul and body with his God-given sex, which will be neither the cause of anxiety nor the focus of identity. With respect to this, those who have already undergone gender reassignment surgery but come to the Lord in repentance can live out their Christian life eschatologically, as all Christians are called to do. But for him, it will have a special meaning. The hope of restoration to physical wholeness prefigured in this life by his restoration to spiritual wholeness. Thus, whether married or chaste, whole or amputated, every living human being is able to progress toward the Lord in theosis through repentance. The Sexless Soul in St. Augustine's Other Writings Before exploring St. Augustine's other writings in which he professes belief in the sexlessness of the soul, we must first mention that he believed the soul alone to be the bearer of the image of God. While it is not to our purposes to draw out the variance among the fathers on this specific issue, it is worth noting that the orthodox understanding, as expressed by St. Gregory Palamas, is that the image belongs to both when the body is transfigured. Nonetheless, St. Augustine's view on the topic is important to keep in mind. Pointing to Galatians 3, 26, 28, which relates that, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and in Christ there is neither male nor female, St. Augustine asks, have faithful women who have been baptized then lost their bodily sex? 84. The answer, of course, is no, for they are there renewed after the image of God, where there is no sex. Man is there made after the image of God, where there is no sex, that is, in the spirit of his mind. To clarify, St. Augustine is saying that this specific passage refers to the reality of the inner man, to which belongs neither race nor sex, which puts on Christ and renews or cleanses the image of God in man. Whether or not we agree with St. Augustine that the image of God belongs to the soul alone, he clearly affirms that the soul is sexless. In City of God, as well as in On Marriage and Concupiscence, he affirms that the difference of sexes is in the body. In City of God, he comments that they seem to be wiser who make no doubt that both sexes shall rise.
Like St. Jerome, St. Augustine adds that these resurrected genital members will not be used for the same purpose. Instead of exciting the passions, they will excite praise of God, for the female members shall remain adapted not to the old uses, but to a new beauty, which so far from provoking lust, now extinct, shall excite praise to the wisdom and clemency of God, who both made what was not, and delivered from corruption what He made. Bodily sex, then, which can be used as an instrument for good or for evil, will be resurrected and transfigured into an instrument of praise. Male and female will be delivered from corruption and will be one, basking in the love and goodness of God together as His beloved creation. Union and oneness in the eschaton, it must be pointed out, does not mean the obliteration of hypostasis as in Hinduism or exact hypostatic uniformity like gingerbread, men out of a cookie cutter. The distinctive qualities of a person, recognized by more than physical form, though the physical body will be resurrected, is a part of the beauty of God's creation, recreation and resurrection of man. In this way, we might say that mankind as a whole will be in union with one another by way of union with God, through His uncreated energies. Along these lines, we might reference St. Paul's example of the parts of the body in 1 Corinthians 12. It is one body, but the parts are not all the same. Commenting on Christ's words in Matthew 22.30, St. Augustine continues with an interesting distinction. But indeed, he, Christ, even affirmed that the sex should exist by saying they shall not be given in marriage, which can only apply to females. Neither shall they marry, which applies to males. There shall therefore be those who are in this world accustomed to marry and be given in marriage. Only they shall there make no such marriages. In stark contrast to origin and modern commentators who call for future existence in androgyny, a kind of uniformity, St. Augustine believes this verse to be confirmation of sexual differentiation in the resurrection. While St. Augustine's treatises can be difficult to read, his conclusions on this topic are staggering. He agrees with St. Athanagoras and St. Jerome that the soul itself is sexless. In agreeing with St. Jerome, he interprets Matthew 22.30 to mean that there will be sex, gender, in heaven, but that these resurrected organs will not continue in their earthly function. With his understanding of the deep unity of the soul and the body in the human person, including his understanding of the soul's semblance of a body, that is, a quasi-corpus, he dispels any idea that the human person can ever become androgynous or formless, even in the interim between death and the general resurrection. In his account, however, he is careful not to attribute corporeality to the soul, maintaining, rather, that it is incorporeal and therefore necessarily sexless. St. Ambrose of Milan St. Ambrose of Milan, who baptized St. Augustine in the year 387, makes the statement that sex belongs to the nature of our flesh. This comment was made within the context of a larger point against the Arians in Exposition of the Christian Faith, a work written at the request of the Roman Emperor Gratian. 
emperor from the year 367 to 383. In this text, St. Ambrose notes that the Arians were proffering the idea that the Father begat the Logos in the course of time. In order to make this claim, they used the following syllogism, since no one exists before they are begotten, and since the Son was begotten by the Father, there was a time when the Son did not exist. In response, St. Ambrose points out that if the divine generation has been subject to the limits of time, if we suppose this borrowing from the custom of human generation, then it follows further that the Father bare the Son in a bodily womb and laboured under the burden whilst ten months sped their courses. He goes on to ask how this would be possible, though, since the common order of generation requires the other sex, concluding that this observable common order is not applicable to the Father and the Son. Regardless of this obvious logical difficulty, the Arians pressed even further, commenting that if the Son were not begotten after the common order, then he cannot be considered a Son, for if the Son has not those properties which all sons have, he is no Son. In response, St. Ambrose notes that God is uncreated, and being that he is God, we find not the customary order prevailing. So be content, he entreats the Arians, to believe in a miraculous generation of the Son. To make this point even more salient, St. Ambrose comments that not only Christ's generation of the Father, but his birth also of the Virgin, demands our wonder. For with what law did his conception in a virgin's womb agree? He continues, If then the common order of human generation was not found in the case of the Virgin Mary, how can you demand that God the Father should beget in such wise as you were begotten in? Surely the common order is determined by difference of sex, for this is implanted in the nature of our flesh. But where flesh is not, how can you expect to find the infirmity of the flesh? Here, Ambrose points out that the common order, that is, conception by sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, is not found in the case of the Virgin Mary. So how could it be found in God the Father? He explains that the common order requires a male and a female. It is determined by difference of sex. This distinction, being implanted in the nature of our flesh, Khan, cannot be found where there is no flesh, for example, in the divine nature. Where there is no such distinction which determines the common order, there can be no necessity of the common order. It would not be a stretch to say that even though St. Ambrose's aim was not directed toward making a dogmatic statement about the sexlessness of the soul, he does come to it in a roundabout way in order to prove his point. The common order exists neither in the pre-eternal begetting of the Son in the bosom of the Father, nor in the historical event of the Incarnation. Rather, this distinction of sexes belongs to the flesh, which is clearly evident by its absence in bodiless beings. The soul is called, along with these bodiless beings, which we call angels, an intelligible creation, whereas the body is a sensible creation. If then the bodiless beings are sexless, 
then the soul must be also. St. Cyril of Jerusalem Sometime in the middle of the 4th century, St. Cyril of Jerusalem gave a series of lectures with the aim of doctrinally equipping catechumens to enter the church. For this reason, his series of talks came to be known as the Catechetical Lectures. Given their dogmatic nature, it is important to emphasize that he explicitly includes the teaching of the sexlessness of the soul. The fact that it is found in the 5th century teachings of St. Jerome and St. Augustine, who were writing shortly after St. Cyril's death, seems to demonstrate that this belief was not unique to the East or the West exclusively. Cyril's teaching on the soul in the catechetical lectures is largely positioned against the erroneous teachings of the ancient Greeks. He emphasizes that man is of a twofold nature, consisting of soul and body, and God is the creator both of soul and body. The whole man is not the soul alone, as many of the philosophers tended to think, but the soul and the body together. Unlike Plato's postulation that the soul is immortal in and of itself, St. Cyril writes that the soul is immortal because of God that gives it immortality. In the next chapter, he notes that the soul is sinless when it enters the world. There was not some pre-cosmic fall in which souls sinned, and as punishment, were imprisoned in bodies. Souls do not pre-exist the body. Immediately following, St. Cyril comments that the soul is immortal, all souls are alike, both of men and women, for only members of the body are distinguished. He elaborates that there is not a class of souls sinning by nature and a class of souls practicing righteousness by nature, but both act from choice the substance of their souls being of one kind only and alike in all. A few chapters later, St. Cyril readily affirms the bodily resurrection, a teaching, as we have already mentioned, inextricably tied to the sexlessness of the soul. While St. Cyril does not mention Apelles specifically, it seems appropriate that he would mention the sexlessness of the soul alongside his refutation of the Greek errors, as Apelles's theology was tied to many of these. But there is something else of interest here. St. Cyril notes that souls act by choice. For the body itself is not the cause of sin, but is used as an instrument of the soul to act in righteousness or unrighteousness. Like St. Athenagoras, since Cyril affirms that the will to move the body in accordance with lawfulness or unlawfulness belongs to the soul, for which reason the soul is said to participate in the sins of the body. St. Gregory, the Theologian In a funeral oration for his sister, Gorgonia, St. Gregory, the Theologian, makes the comment that the distinction between male and female is one of body, not of soul. The context of the quote is fairly simple, the oration itself fairly short. St. Gregory begins by briefly outlining Gorgonia's life, with which many of those present would have been familiar. Then he praises her virtue. In a rhapsody about her incessant fasting, her many nights spent in vigil, and her fountain of tears, he reflectively proclaims, 
own nature of woman overcoming that of a man in the common struggle for salvation and demonstrating that the distinction between male and female is one of body, not of soul. St. Gregory's point here is connected to the fact that in the ancient world, women were often considered inferior to men. He is saying that, despite her being of the weaker sex, his sister persevered courageously in ascetic struggle in a way that overshadowed the strength of many Christian men. We can see the same kind of reasoning in various Orthodox hymns that call the female martyrs manly or full of manliness. What is meant is simply that they were courageous, a virtue typically ascribed to the stronger male sex. They became manly in that they were courageous in the face of their trials and martyrdom. While this clarifies what St. Gregory may have meant in his oration, it would certainly be incorrect to read modern conceptions of gender into the hymnographic lords concerning the manliness of women as some have desperately tried to do. Beauty would be resurrected with his amputated arm restored. St. Ambrose of Milan comments that sex belongs to the flesh. St. Cyril of Jerusalem notes that all souls are alike both of men and women, for only members of the body are distinguished. St. Gregory of Nazianzus affirms likewise in his praise of his sister, who, by her courage and valiant asceticism, demonstrates that women are not inferior to men. This is made clear existentially by her actions, and theologically, according to St. Gregory, because the distinction between male and female is one of body, not of soul. Finally, St. Theodore the Studite comments that because no division of sex can be discerned in the angelic realm, maleness and femaleness are sought only in the forms of bodies. Drawing Conclusions The difference of sex exists in the body, not the soul. The soul itself is sexless. However, every single human being might be considered sexed-gendered by virtue of the fact that human nature itself is made up of body and soul. This sex is fixed for eternity, as every human soul will be reunited with its body in the resurrection. These bodies will be made up of the same parts, including sexual organs. But not all these parts will serve the same function. Regardless of what a human being does to his body on the earth, whether he castrates himself or takes hormone supplements, he will be resurrected with his original parts, just like the amputee who will be resurrected with all of his limbs. A male amputee is still male, even though he is given another label. Amputee. The fundamental reality that he is a male human being can never be changed, even though he has been given an additional title. Furthermore, what a person actually is will be revealed in heaven. This applies to men who believe themselves to be women and those who have had gender reassignment surgeries so they physically look like a woman and so on. All of this is important to underline for the sake of the men who wish to place sex or gender in the soul during the seminary classroom drama outlined in the first chapter. They seem to think if the soul is sexless, that implies a man who undergoes sex reassignment surgery actually becomes a woman. The gendered soul is, in their minds, 
a way to solidify its fixed and eternal status, whereas the idea of the sexless soul leads to a degradation of sexual differentiation. For this reason, they also shy away from the idea found in St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Maximus the Confessor, and repeated by St. John of Damascus, that bodily sex is a post-lapsarian provision for reproduction, believing it to lead necessarily to resurrected androgyny, the denigration of bodily sex, and the defamation of rightfully exercised sexual intercourse within the context of marriage. Observing that the aforementioned view does not lead necessarily to any of these is our only recourse until further work is done to draw this out in detail. Outside of the purview of St. Gregory of Nyssa and St. Maximus, on the reason for the sexual differentiation, however, we see that the sexless soul is the patristic consensus. The latter and the former are not specifically associated. It is absolutely vital that we maintain the sexlessness of the soul. If some persist in the error of proclaiming that the soul is gendered by virtue of one's bodily sex, it will infect every part of our theology, our witness, and how we live our lives as faithful Orthodox Christians. In the next section, we will look at how such a confession can change fundamental Orthodox beliefs about salvation and hinders our witness in the modern world. Afterward, on Galatians 3.28. While some have used Galatians 3.28 together with Matthew 22.30 as a proof text for an androgynous resurrection, it would be better understood as signifying that ethnicity, sex, and social status are not hindrances to life in Christ. Tertullian and Afrahat have strange conclusions concerning this passage on the Apparel of Women, Chapter 2, and Demonstrations 6.6, 22.1213 respectively, but Clement of Alexandria uses the passage to show that Christ is not divided, Exhortation to the Heathen, Chapter 11, as does the editor of St. Ignatius of Antioch, longer recension of his letter to the Philadelphians, Chapter 4. We might also point to St. Augustine's interpretation of this passage above. Above all, it is clear one should not attempt an isolated interpretation of these passages. Rather, one should look at the context of the verses in addition to the overall vision of the Church Fathers. Chapter 5 The Orthodox Church and Modern Gender Theory There is an infinite gap between creation and the God who created it. For God alone is uncreated. God alone is without beginning. Within creation itself, which God created out of nothing, there also exists a gap between the intelligible creation and the sensible creation. One is incorporeal, intelligent, and rational, and to it belongs free will. The other is corporeal and dense, made up of the material elements and encompassed by three dimensions. Angels, which have an intelligible essence, belong to the first. The cosmos and animals to the second, because they have a sensible essence. But the human being is unique among God's creation. Made up of soul and body together, not one without the other, he bridges the gap between the intelligible creation 
and the sensible creation. He is a microcosm. To the human being alone belongs both the intelligible and sensible essences, which together comprise the singular human nature, existing without differentiation in both men and women. Human nature itself is made up of a sensible, material essence, the human body, and an intelligible essence, the human soul. That which is of a sensible essence is complex and composite, liable to differentiation of parts without differentiation of essence. Intelligible essences are simple and incomposite. For this reason, any differentiation in them, whether by addition or subtraction of energies or powers, for these are the only parts we can speak about in the soul, necessarily divides them by essence. Concerning the intelligible essences of angels, St. John of Damascus admits we do not know if they differ by essence, but we do know they differ from each other in brightness and position, just as men can differ spiritually by their closeness to God and in the world by their occupation. Thomas Aquinas reasoned that the angels differ in essence, that there are species of angels. While we do know a difference of energies points to a difference of essence, and sameness of energies points to sameness of essence, as Orthodox Christians we confess, along with St. John, that we do not know enough about angels to be able to say if they differ merely by rank or by essence as well. The sensible essence of the human body. The human body itself is made up of a combination of countless atoms, the building blocks of the material world. While there are many different kinds of flesh, that is, many different species within the material world, there is but one flesh of man. 6. The many variations and parts of the body do not divide its single, sensible essence as a human body. Neither do the biological differences between men and women divide it, for a sensible essence admits division and variation of material parts. This is why the variance between a male and a female in physical structure does not subdivide the human race into two different species. We likewise affirm with the Apostle that there is one kind of flesh that belongs to every human being. Consider the following example. A man born without legs or a child, not yet fully formed in the womb, are both considered human beings consubstantial with the rest of the human race, even though they do not yet, or perhaps never will, possess the physical attributes that normally belong to the human body. For the body, as a sensible essence, admits change and physical growth. The stage at which a person is in this process does not, or rather should not, hinder his classification as a human being. The orthodox teaching concerning the unborn child specifically is that from the very moment of conception he is a human being, a unique creation, even though his physical form does not yet look like it, for he possesses at that very moment both a sensible essence, the one flesh of man, in the process of growing to maturity, and an intelligible essence in its entirety. He is formed in the image of God, with the possibility of attaining to the likeness of God. The Intelligible Essence of the Human Soul The human soul is neither material 
nor composite. It is simple and intelligible in its essence. It is singular, and one in that it is not made up of many parts. While there are many powers or energies of the soul, which might be called the parts of the soul, although this expression is somewhat crude, they do not divide its singular, intelligible essence. But the soul cannot be divided into parts as the body can. Neither can it admit a variation of parts as the body does, since it is not a material substance. Any such variation in an intelligible essence necessarily divides it in essence, for any differentiation of parts would be a differentiation of energy. If there are souls with different parts, then they must be admitted to be of different essences. There can be no substantial differences, then, between the souls of men and women. Rather, the soul of every single human being contains the exact same powers and energies. While there may be a variation in how these energies are used from person to person, based on ascetic discipline or disposition, each person possesses the same kind of soul, a human soul. Theological Consequences of the Gendered Soul If the souls of men and women differ from one another substantially, if a male soul is or contains something the female soul is or does not, or vice versa, so that there is a true distinction beyond disposition, then it would follow that there are two different kinds of human souls, one male and one female. This distortion of orthodox anthropology is one of the ways the belief in the gendered soul damages the theology of those who profess it. This distinction of male and female souls would divide the human race in a way our bodies do not divide it, since it precludes the possibility that there is a human soul. Such a claim requires us to confess that there is a male soul and a female soul. This, in turn, necessarily differentiates one from one another by essence, since they differ from one another by parts or energies. If this were the case, there would not be one human nature but two, one male and one female. As such, men and women could not be considered consubstantial with one another. As emphasized earlier, one can only properly speak of a human being as soul and body together, not as soul without body or body without soul. For the union of these two exists from conception without confusion or mixture or division or separation in a manner akin to the mystery of Christ's divinity and humanity. In fact, the structure of the human being, whose nature is made up of an intelligible and a sensible essence, seems to be a kind of typology prefiguring the incarnate Christ. He holds together, in his divine person, two natures completely unlike one another, bridging the gulf, separating humanity from divinity, but not confusing the two. This is the most important reason for professing the sexlessness of the soul. How we understand human nature, and whether or not the soul is gendered, radically affects how we understand salvation in Christ. The Importance of the Sexlessness of the Soul the forced separation of the soul and the body in death is not a natural event. Death only exists as a result of sin. But death no longer reigns. 
The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Divine Logos, who himself is uncreated, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. 8. Because of this, Jesus Christ now possesses both his divine nature and our human nature. He is consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit on account of the first, and consubstantial with us on account of the second. Everything it means to be a human being, Christ became. Responding to the early Christological controversies, the Fathers insist Christ took on both a human body and a human soul with the energy and will proper to it. For if he took on one without the other, or all of one and only part of the other, as Apollinaris claimed, then the entire man, the whole of the human being, would not be saved. In the words of St. Gregory, the theologian, that which is not assumed is not saved or healed. 9. The idea of a gendered or sexually differentiated soul distorts our vision of salvation by distorting our understanding of the human being. If the souls of men and women differ by essence, then Christ only assumed a male human nature and a male soul along with it. This means the souls of women are not and cannot be saved. The view that only men are saved and women must become men in order to be saved does have a precedent in the firmly rejected apocryphal Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mariam go out from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, Look, I will lead her that I may make her male, in order that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Gospel of Thomas, saying 114. Interestingly, this apocryphal work is dated by some scholars around the same time as the rise of early proto-Kabbalistic traditions. Looking at whether post-Temple Jewish mysticism may have influenced the writer of the Gospel of Thomas's soteriology alongside its relation to Apelles would make an interesting study. But the idea that women are not saved unless they become men is not an orthodox teaching. Christ assumed everything it means to be human. He assumed both essences of body and soul, which make up the single human nature. He became incarnate as a male, and healed the one flesh that belongs to all humans. He took on a human soul, undifferentiated by essence in both men and women. And so, by his full assumption of what it means to be a human being, he saved both men and women. Christ destroyed death by death, transforming this tragedy into a mercy, for just as sin is the beginning of death, death is the end of sin. But in Christ there is life, for Christ himself as perfect man and perfect God bridges the gap between the uncreated and the created, the created chasm between the intelligible and the sensible, and the unnatural division between the living and the departed. All of these he perfectly unites in his divine person. In this sense, all is reunited in him because all exist in him, and in him there are no divisions. He is the man par excellence who takes up all of creation in himself and offers it to the Father 
on the cross. Even though many of the church fathers who witnessed to the sexlessness of the soul lived over 1,000 years before the advent of gender theory, their consensus preemptively refutes the idea that gender can be severed from biological sex. This can provide us with inspiration for how to speak about the issues facing the Orthodox Church in the world today. The simple fact is that there is not and cannot be a distinction between male and female souls. There is no place for sexual differentiation in the soul. A male human being may be more emotional by disposition and a female more courageous without either sacrificing maleness or femaleness. Whether or not they conform to the typical patterns of behavior assigned to their biological sex, they still are, in fact, what their biological sex at birth proclaims. Medical science stands on the side of the fathers. The castrated male is still male. After all, biological sex is more than genitalia, and it is not changeable. Even though the push for social approval and lawful recognition of transgender and genderqueer individuals is rapidly gaining momentum today, there are differences in certain foundational principles. Some transgender advocates claim a male can have a female soul or female brain, or vice versa. This emphasis on the distinction between one's true inner self over against their outward biology is the argument pushed within popular culture through the media. A turning point in the public perception of this was marked by the 2015 interview between Bruce Jenner and Diane Sawyer, in which Jenner tearfully admitted to suffering from gender dysphoria, a painful disparity between his perceived internal gender and outer biological sex. This was a catalyst for the societal push for nationwide legalization and acceptance of gender reassignment surgeries. Today, it is argued that these surgeries should even be available to young children so that all have the freedom to conform their external body to match their true internal self. This form of gender rhetoric tends to stay within the gender binary of male-female and reaffirm cultural expressions of manhood and womanhood. For example, a male with a female gender identity would wear dresses, high heels, makeup, etc. On the other hand, some claim that all gender is performative. People discover and solidify their gender by their performance of it in day-to-day -day life. In this view, gender is said to be fluid. Gender fluidity means a person can drift in and out of gender identities based on desire or whim, though it may not be expressed thus. According to this philosophy, there are an infinite number of sexes and gender identities. It is not necessary to surgically conform the outer body to one's internal identity because gender identity is not fixed. This understanding of gender prevails in the academic world, which has been led for the last few decades by Judith Butler. Butler criticizes the linguistic bifurcation of sex and gender. Instead, she theorizes that gender is constructed over time and eventually comes to be normalized within society. This normalization is then reflected in our physical embodiment. Human bodies and sexuality change with this normative consensus. She concludes that gender is fluid. 
What has been observed as a male-female binary in our own day is nothing more than the reiteration of gender roles within the culture over time. Hence, the binary is not binding, it is indicative of our culturally biased expression of it. In this sense, we might make a peculiar equation between Butler's theory of gender performance and cultural reiteration, which eventually results in this culturally confirmed gender pressing itself upon the body, with Apelles's view of the soul pressing its sex upon the body. While neither admit a distinction between internal gender and biological sex, both believe that the physical manifestation of sex is affected or developed by some other internal force or reality. The difference in Butler's view is her aberration from the binary alongside her emphasis on the necessity of cultural confirmation. Regardless of which modern theory of gender one prefers, both fall into a series of ancient philosophical errors from dualism to materialism. Inasmuch as the line between these two streams of thought is blurred by the media, most individuals wind up expressing aspects of each. The result is an ever-evolving host of philosophies which, on account of their unremitting variations, are impossible to adequately refute. What prevails within society as a whole, then, is their common vision, to acquire freedom for individuals to act or do anything they want, with the added bonus of legally mandated punitive action against those who disagree with their actions or ideologies. Within the Christian understanding of freedom, however, these are passionately fighting for slavery. True freedom is the ability to restrain the desires of the flesh and the clarity to recognize that some of our desires are misplaced. The inability, or at the very least the refusal, to do this is slavery. This shared vision is expressed with a common vernacular that has developed over the last several years. Sex and gender is said to be a triadic relationship between one's body, internal identity, and expression of sex-slash-gender. This triad is distinct from sexual orientation. One can be a biological male who identifies as a female, expresses his identity in a culturally accepted feminine way, but still have a heterosexual orientation. Thus, in modern rhetoric, there is biological sex, sex of the body, internal gender identity, perceived internal identity, and expression of gender, how one acts, dresses, etc. The two streams of thought outlined above mainly disagree as to whether or not internal gender identity is fixed. The first group would say it is, while the second group would say it can fluctuate, along with sexual orientation or preference. Modern Concepts Concerning biological sex, gender theorists tend to fight against the gender binary, a concept wherein most societies view sex as a binary concept, with two rigidly fixed options, male or female. But there are naturally occurring intersex conditions that demonstrate that sex exists across a continuum of possibilities. It is claimed that the infinite variation within the female and male bodies, alongside conditions wherein a child is born with a variation of, or even both, reproductive organs, demonstrates that there is a biological spectrum which, 
itself should be enough to dispel the simplistic notion of the gender binary. There are not just two sexes. 16. So, dividing mankind into male and female categories based on biology is invalid, because there are countless biological variations. It should be obvious that this view is dedicated to an evolutionary anthropology wherein there is not a prototypical man, a creation of male and female, but rather countless variations of apes, ape-men, and men. The method proposed by gender theorists seems to indicate that any variation is individualization in the sense that there is no ontological grounding for man. There is no such thing as a human being, but only individuals. Individual biological variations necessarily set each individual in a category by himself, so that there are an infinite number of possible biological sexes and genders. Unsurprisingly, it is only the non-conforming sex and gender variations which are highlighted within this opinion. Conditions such as autism, Down syndrome, and various mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, or even in the existence of extra phalanges, missing organs or vestigial tails, are all considered outside of the normal human condition. Horrifyingly, the discovery of Down syndrome in a child in utero today, in an increasing number of cases, leads to abortion. This shows a clear double standard. We need not point out in detail that placing such conditions outside the normal is inconsistent if there is no normal, if everything is reckoned on the basis of the individual. It is rarely mentioned that in most intersex cases there is one set of fully developed organs, while the other is an additional, underdeveloped part. Neither is it mentioned that when biologically tested, the results demonstrate a clear consensus of male or female, usually in concert with the developed organs. While the anomaly of intersex conditions is said to prove the existence of sex outside of the binary, this raises a number of questions, such as why the physiological variation is not more than it is, not just in percentage of intersex, but in actual variation. Intersexuality and hormonal and chromosomal variations. Biological sex is written into every cell of the human body. The script which determines one's biological sex is the 23rd pair of chromosomes. Female human beings have two X chromosomes and males have one X and one YY. There are, however, an array of chromosomal variations wherein a child may be born with 47 total chromosomes. XXY, called Kleinfelter's syndrome, my X, called triple X syndrome, or XYY, and others that result in only one X or Y. When a male child is born with XXY chromosomes, affecting one out of every 600 males, his testosterone levels, organ size, body shape, hair growth and fertility will be affected. With triple X syndrome, one in 1,000, there are few physical affectations, though a female who has three X chromosomes may be taller than average. Other variations include monosomy, where only one sex chromosome is present, totaling 45 chromosomes instead of 46. Only one X chromosome, occurring at a rate of 1 in 1,000, is called Turner's syndrome and may cause short stature or lessen feminine features.
Other rare variations, which we will not detail here, have also been observed. Intersexuality is a biological irregularity that presents a host of difficulties. According to the World Health Organization, an estimate about the birth prevalence of intersex is difficult to make because there are no concrete parameters to the definition of intersex. While visible intersexuality is somewhat rare, 0.05% of births, most of the discourse which highlights intersexuality as a proof that biological sex is not stable lumps all of these anomalies together under the label of intersexuality in order to get a higher percentage of those affected. Planned Parenthood places the frequency of such cases as 1 in 100 or 1% 1 of all births. With all of these cases, however, there is no one-size-fits-all answer. Indeed, we must demur in the rarest instances when the biological sex of an infant with two sets of fully developed sexual organs is determined by surgeons, but the child later expresses serious gender dysphoria. Along this line, we might raise an interesting, albeit possibly absurd, question. If we, as Orthodox Christians, who have a long tradition of condemning unnecessary, the operative word, removal of body parts, how should we view such surgical interventions? Rare as they are, how should the biological sex of such a child be determined? Such cases present serious pastoral considerations. While such variations are often held up in favor of transgenderism against proponents of the male-female binary, there have yet to be any studies linking specific cases of chromosomal variations or intersex conditions with the development of gender dysphoria or transgenderism. Certainly, such cases present difficulties for the lives of those they affect, who must come to terms, emotionally and psychologically, with physical aberrations from most of their peers. Such struggles should not be dismissed, as they present a situation where pastoral care should also be exercised carefully. Gender and expression. While we have already spoken of the binary in several instances, it is important to note that occasionally a distinction is made between the biological binary and gender binary. Typically, the titles male and female are used for biology, and man and woman are used for what might be called the social construction of the gender binary. The latter is our internal experience and naming of our gender. 19. Because naming our gender can be a complex and evolving matter, we are provided with limited language for gender, it may take a person quite some time to discover or create the language that best communicates their gender. Theoretically, this means there could be as many genders as people in the world, or even more, if gender varies day by day. In this sense, gender is ceaselessly created or constructed, and in a sense can never be repeated because it is an individual experience. The rhetoric certainly seems to indicate conclusions like this, but Butler gets around such critiques by using Derrida's idea of iterability and aspects of Foucault's understanding of discipline, claiming that acts performed by many individuals construct such variations. With this understanding of gender, a number of new terms have arisen, such as cisgender, 
a person who has a gender identity consistent with the sex they were assigned at birth. By contrast, a transgender person has a gender identity that does not match the sex they were assigned at birth. This typically involves a male identifying as a female, or vice versa. In other words, it still involves the male-female binary. But there are also gender identities which are non-binary, where someone does not identify as a boy or a girl, but as both or neither, or as another gender entirely. Those who do not claim any gender, binary or non-binary, are called a gender. Modern Concepts Concerning gender expression gender is written into the fabric of society itself. Practically everything is assigned to gender, toys, colours, clothes and activities are some of the more obvious examples. Gender expression, then, is the way we show our gender to the world around us through such things as clothing, hairstyles and mannerisms, to name a few. However, it is important to keep in mind that gender expression is distinct from identity. We can't assume a person's gender identity based on their gender expression. For example, a cisgender boy may like to wear skirts or dresses. His choice in clothing doesn't change his gender identity. It simply means that he prefers, at least some of the time, to wear clothing that society typically associates with girls. This means that just as there are an infinite number of sexes and genders, there are an infinite number of ways to express gender. It is the unique right of the individual to construct not only his own gender, but his own expression of gender, and to display his self-created gender to the world. In this, we can discern just another example of what I call academic morphology. This self-construction of gender is nothing more than an appropriation of existentialist philosophy applied to gender. A bastardization of Sartre's existence precedes essence. Within our present society, one is acting in bad faith if they are not being true to themselves, and to be true to yourself is to claim any feeling or desire as identity and fact, then assert the will in defense of these self-created identities. Author's note on the term academic morphology. I would like to connect this term to the idea that every culture inherits a series of culturally accepted truths which are then reseeded, watered, and flower into new truths. Consider the following, the deification of the rational mind, Dionia, in the West, beginning with Anselm of Canterbury and flowering with Thomas Aquinas, allowed for the development of the radical individualism of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. This individualism was then inherited by the society at large, which began tearing down traditional society symbolically with anti-traditional developments in art, music and architecture, see Picasso, Wagner and Gopius, marshalling this individualism and sexual libertinism. These indirect attacks on Christianity, in turn, led man to the dialectical consummation of individualism in the philosophy of existentialism, modern man's blatant codification and deification of the prior 300 years' work. This synthesis of indirect and direct attacks on tradition fed the monster of Zeitgeist. 
By the 21st century, this philosophical synthesis trickled down into the common vernacular and was accepted by modern man as the cultural truth. Thus, as Sartre says, man does not have an essence and therefore must create himself. Our society believes there are no governing restrictions on what man can create himself to be. As de Beauvoir says that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Our society believes the distinction between male and female does not even exist, but only pieces of their philosophy are taken, resulting in a bastardization of their larger point. Thus, the apex of a cultural movement is prefigured by the indirect proffering of these ideas, followed by their codification in intellectual formulation, only to become for the next century a trite pool quote that trivializes the philosophy in order to make it comprehensible for the masses and to push a different agenda. When it is fully digested, it becomes an inherent cultural truth about which no questions are raised. And the previous century's intellectual elite, who did much work to establish this truth, become another vague memory, a nostalgia, to which the pop culture is incontestably indebted, but of whom they have no memory. Consider Charles Taylor's Social Contagion Sexual Orientation Homosexuality as a sexual orientation is distinct from the topic of transgenderism in that one's sexual preferences are not a direct result of the complex interrelationship between the triad of body, identity, and expression. For this reason, how we approach transgenderism will not be the most effective approach to homosexuality. In the homosexual debate, identity is simply equated with sexual orientation which exists from birth and is fixed. In the transgender debate, identity is self-created. Sexual orientation stands apart from this identity in most cases. In some circles, sexual orientation is considered fixed, and in others it is said to fluctuate from day to day as mere sexual preference or whim and desire. But the locus of identity for the transgender community is in this self-asserted gender. Gender Rhetoric and the Orthodox Church The main issue with gender rhetoric is that it rapidly morphs over short periods of time. It is easy to get stuck in trying to figure out the terminology or get roped into using it. When this happens, our conclusions depart from orthodox tradition as the language itself assumes an anthropology that is not orthodox. Given what we know about the human soul through divine revelation, that it is sexless, has a specific ordering wherein the intelligent aspect leads the lower aspects, and that it has a noetic window through which divine realities are directly perceived. We cannot accept the first premise assumed in the separation of biological sex from gender. Considering that this distinction is the foundation upon which these elaborate theories of gender are built, the Father's teaching that sex belongs to the body and is absent from the inner man is crucial in our response as Orthodox Christians. Unfortunately, some Orthodox academics have already bought into this deceptive distinction, calling for an Orthodox response to, and in some cases, even Orthodox approval of, transgender lifestyles. Granted, even questioning this distinction between sex-slash-gender is likely to do damage to one's academic reputation. 
even speaking about the subject has become dangerous, socially and sometimes physically. The world is trying to force us into linguistic traps. The militant campaign, under the name of human rights, is trying to bully us into using the pronouns preferred by each individual. But Orthodox Christians in the 21st century would do well to take up their cross in opposing this modern Caesar and, if necessary, face the wild animals in the Colosseum. We are not in the business of reinforcing lies that prevent the freedom of the human being. Our goal is to proclaim true freedom in Christ. For this is true freedom, freedom from the passions and from necessity, the healing of the entire human person. Maintaining the truth consists in our ability to hold together two paradoxical realities, that the body and the soul are distinct from one another but coin here, and that they are both important. If we fail to adequately distinguish between the body and the soul, we become materialists. If we fail to properly affirm the unity of the soul and the body, we become Neoplatonists. Just as confessing the truth about the God-man requires us to crucify our minds, holding together any two paradoxical realities required by the truth necessitates that we mount the cross with our arms outstretched. This is the Christian embrace of the transgender community. What many of those within the transgender movement find impossible to understand is that we profess what we do because it is the path to healing. We do not want them to suffer or to feel lonely, confused, or depressed. But in their narrative, those who do not automatically approve of their lifestyle hate them. They are bigoted because they refuse their fundamental human right to act or dress a certain way to do what they please with their body. They are right in one sense. It is their choice. They have the fundamental human right, a God-given right to choose, which we affirm. What we deny is that all choices are neutral. Every choice we make moves us further toward or away from healing. The way C.S. Lewis describes this reality in mere Christianity is worth quoting at length. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. Every choice we make takes us one step down the road. Every choice provides us an opportunity to be deified or damned. As Orthodox Christians, we cannot fall into confusion or timidity about which choices lead to life and which choices lead to death. Chapter 6 towards orthodox pastoral care for gender dysphoria. Even though we cannot affirm the separation of gender from sex, it is important for us to acknowledge that gender dysphoria does exist and that it can be confusing and painful for those who suffer from it. 
When confronted by someone suffering in this way, the best thing pastors can do is listen and acknowledge their struggle and pain. Even though the content of their feelings is not true, their confusion is real, their pain is real, and the feelings themselves, which are causing these, are real. Sadly, this distinction seems to be all but lost in our present day. We would do well to recover it, though, for ourselves and for the people we serve, as a large portion of the spiritual warfare that we face every day involves exactly this, discerning the truthfulness or untruthfulness of thoughts and feelings. This task involves the watchfulness of prayerful stillness, the silence of the heart. But most of the time, our hearts are not silent. They are filled with thoughts cultivated by the passions or unidentified whisperings from the demons. Together, these develop in the heart conditions favorable for a tempest. Such a climate affords control to thoughts and feelings which, upon first appearance, immediately produce violent waves that toss us about. In this state we are vulnerable. We are moved to and fro passively because we have not worked to separate ourselves from our thoughts and feelings nor discern their truthfulness or falsehood. Calming this passionate swelling in the heart requires prayer and stillness. In storms and squalls we need a pilot, says St. Isaiah the Solitary, and in this present life we need prayer, for we are susceptible to the provocations of our thoughts, both good and bad. Be attentive to your heart. Over time, as this is practiced with care, space will begin to develop between the presentation of a thought or feeling and our automatic acceptance of it. This space, provided by watchfulness, allows us the opportunity to bring every movement of our heart into the purifying light of God, who provides us with the clarity to discern between truth and falsehood and allows us to put a name to feelings that once stirred us without our knowing consent. Now named, the fruits of our internal work will bloom within the life of the church. The serpents found in the heart's garden are cast out through confession and slain by the cross of daily struggle. Endurance in this task is marked by the gradual release of identity from passion, thought and feeling, and its relocation in Christ. The battleground is the heart. Watchfulness and endurance are our daily struggle, our weapon, the name of Christ, our goal, theosis. Where submitting to truth over falsehood, or vice versa, leads us is spelled out in the Psalter. The former abide in the Lord, walk blamelessly, and work righteousness, but the latter are set at naught or destroyed, in the sense of spiritual death, or in the case of the demons who speak lies to us, the casting into the lake of fire. Certainly the tendency in society today is to call all feelings true, and in some cases to place our identity in them. As a result, truths have diminished from the sons of men, and vain things hath each man spoken to his neighbor. Likewise, when we consent to an untruthful feeling or thought, we are like those of whom the psalmist speaks. Deceitful lips are in his heart, and in his heart hath he spoken evils. It is not sin to have the thought. It is sin to consent to it. 
Sikh's spiritual growth is not necessarily characterized by the cessation of these thoughts or feelings, but in how we respond to them. We should not be anxious, then, when a particular thought is presented to us. Rather, in discerning its deceit, we can dismiss it without lingering and no longer worry about it. Eventually, this process will be instinctual. The interval between discovery, discernment, and dismissal will shrink over time. If we have good spiritual hygiene, these passionate thoughts will not stick like food to plaque on our teeth. But if we fail to scrub clean the crevices of our heart, flossing out through discernment all falsehood that lurks there, then this pattern will develop in reverse. We will be moved almost automatically to the admittance of false thoughts into our heart and their equation with our identity, which will eventually rot and become spiritual cavities. The Church provides us with guidance and comfort in our journey down this narrow path to wholeness, a path common to all struggling to live in Christ, though the pilgrimage itself may look different for each. For instance, the Psalter can be used for comfort or as a weapon in every situation in which we may find ourselves. We may cry in prayer with the psalmist when we are assaulted by despair. Many say unto my soul, There is no salvation for him in his God. We may wonder how long the Lord will forget us, but if we use the words of the psalmist, we will be led to the truth, confessing that Thou, O Lord, art my helper, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. Or we might cry in repentance, O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, nor chasten me in thy wrath. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, and my soul is troubled greatly. But thou, O Lord, how long? Appending our own prayer to the psalmists in this way is a practical method that has been employed throughout the Church's long tradition. And like David, we can rest assured that through such struggles our heart will be enlarged. Ten, when we cry unto the Lord, He will hear us and deliver us. We can keep the ways that are hard, even though the pangs of death surround us, for the sake of the words of salvation that Christ has spoken, the promises He has made, because the words of the Lord are pure words. Pastoral care for those afflicted with gender dysphoria, then, presumes the aforementioned distinction between the person and his thoughts or feelings, and that this internal task of discernment between truth and falsehood is one common to all Christians. With this understanding, the pastor will be able to effectively listen to and affirm the painfulness of the struggle itself. Furnished with the teachings of the fathers on the sexlessness of the soul, he will be able to help those in his care discern between truth and falsehood. By making use of the tools given to us by the Church, specifically by participation in divine services, the holy mysteries of confession and the Eucharist, festal and fasting periods, personal prayer and scripture reading, and deliberate use of the Psalter, those traversing this difficult path can find great strength to endure. In this way, we might say that the remedy for those suffering from gender dysphoria is the same remedy given to all of us, to live the life of Christ as prescribed by the Church, 
which leads to the correct ordering of the soul and subsequently the rehabilitation of the whole person. Elder Thaddeus of Vitovnica The life of Elder Thaddeus of Vitovnica was marked by physical ailments, material poverty, and a perpetual battle with what might be called the spiritual illnesses of our time, anxiety, despair, and depression. Because of his faithfulness in the struggle against these pernicious demons, he became one of the foremost elders of 20th century Serbia. He served during the dark days of communism, first as a young monk, later as a deacon, and eventually as a hieromonk, abbot, and spiritual father. In counseling his spiritual children, he made use of his own experience and ministered out of his own sense of woundedness. Thus, in pastoral ministry, his own wounds became sources of healing, and by his words, many were freed from their burdens. Considering his victory in the struggle against these modern spiritual illnesses, he stands out as an example not only for the 20th century, but for us today as well. As with many of the great saints, his entire teaching and method can be summarized thus. Our life depends on the kinds of thoughts we have. This is because where we nurture evil thoughts, we become evil. We may think that we are good, but evil is in us. On this theme, he notes that many times our anxiety, depression, or despair are due to our thoughts. A person who is entrapped in the vicious cycle of chaotic thoughts feels the torments of hell. While the elder does not promote the idea that medicinal help is unwarranted in cases of physical imbalances, he insists that spiritual imbalances must likewise be considered. The role of Christians in the world, according to Elder Thaddeus, is to filter the atmosphere on earth and expand the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. We keep guard over the whole world by keeping guard over the atmosphere of heaven within us. For a man who has within him the kingdom of heaven radiates holy thoughts, divine thoughts. Concerning evil thoughts, the elder simply taught that we should ignore them. We should not fight them per se or converse with them, but step out of the way and let them pass us by. This is possible because as soon as a desire or worldly thought enters our mind, God immediately sends a warning which is discernible as space in the heart is developed. Regrettably, many times, instead of coming to our senses and blocking such thoughts and desires, we nurture them and long for them, and afterwards we wonder why bad things happen to us. Our thoughts are often traps set for us by the evil one. In fact, sometimes they are so absurd that we gasp, wondering how we could think such a thing, and then we ruminate on it for hours on end. Noting this, he once told one of his spiritual children, had you ignored the attack, you would have kept your peace. After all, if we enter into conversations with such a thought, we will soon be caught in its net. Instead, we should hang a sign on the inside of the door to our heart, where the demons persistently knock from outside with bad thoughts, on which the following is written in big red letters. Do not engage. The Elder, 
as a model for pastoral ministry. Whether we live in peaceful times or in times of war, we would do well to imitate the elders' unwavering faith and hope in God. With this faith, he was able to effectively ignore the attacks of the demons, who once plagued him with paralyzing anxiety and depression. In his patient endurance, he was restored to health and wholeness. He possessed his soul, becoming a real human being who radiated heaven to those around him. The story of Elder Thaddeus's life should be of great encouragement to us as we patiently endure the trials that come to us day by day. It is absolutely vital that Orthodox pastors and leaders do not yield to any bad thoughts insofar as they are able, especially about their family or flock. Rather, every single one of us should cover the sins of our brothers with love, radiating heaven and introducing good thoughts from the wellspring we have cultivated within. Pastoral application to those suffering from gender dysphoria. From the elder's teachings, we can extrapolate by analogy how he might have counseled someone struggling with gender dysphoria. Let's call this fictional person John. First, we should note that the impetus is placed on the pastor's interior life and his disposition toward the person struggling. In this sense, the response of the pastor to any scenario is predicated on his own personal preparation, not of the rational mind, but of the heart. If the pastor radiates heaven, then he will become a healing presence, to borrow a phrase from Dr. Albert Rossi, while he actively listens to John's struggle and pain. The pastor should affirm, as we said above, that what John is experiencing is painful. The pastor can do this genuinely by looking at his own internal experience of hell with his struggle with bad thoughts, desires, and feelings. Depending on where John is spiritually, in this scenario we are assuming he is orthodox, and the relationship he has with the pastor, the pastor could use Elder Thaddeus's teachings to clear up some confusion. We are not our thoughts or desires. Many times these are suggested to us from outside influences. Furthermore, we do not have to act on our thoughts or our desires in order to be true to ourselves. It is important that the pastor draws out where we find our true identity in Christ. We should look to Christ and submit all our thoughts and desires to Him. With respect to this, John should not focus on thoughts or feelings that he is actually a woman. Nor should he worry about his desire to be a woman. Rather, he should focus solely on Christ. One very practical way John has already taken the first step on this path is by talking to the pastor in the first place, which the pastor would do well to point out. The pastor should also highlight that confession is not merely about telling God what we have done wrong, but also laying bare before him our hidden thoughts and desires, many of which cause us pain. This is the tangible way we take our thoughts captive to Christ. Furthermore, it would behoove the pastor to familiarize himself with and recommend local psychologists and therapists that may be of help on John's journey. For John, it may be helpful to think about himself as a human being who is coming to Christ, in whom there is neither male nor female, which is to say men and women can both come to and experience the fullness of salvation in Christ.
As John's relationship grows with his pastor and with Christ, his understanding of the truths above, as well as his Christian identity, will deepen. Utilizing the teachings of Elder Thaddeus on thoughts and desires, and how they make present for us heaven or hell, the pastor would counsel the person struggling with gender dysphoria to cultivate good thoughts and focus on Christ. In this way, heaven is cultivated within, and in this way we become true human beings in whom there is no contradiction or division. To put it another way, this path of healing leads us to a place where the internal dissonance between the law of sin and death and the law of Christ or between our perceived identity and our physical body is resolved because in Him we are made whole. Conclusion The human being is composed of an incorporeal soul which has an intelligible essence and a corporeal body which has a sensible essence. Together, these two form the one nature common to all human beings. While every human being has a definite sex because of the body, the soul itself is sexless. The belief that sex and or gender must be found in the soul in order to uphold its ontological importance reveals an impoverished theology of the body, a tacit denial that it will be raised in whole and reunited with the soul. On account of this, sex and gender will exist in heaven, though the bodily parts will not be used for pleasure or copulation. Every human being will be raised with the same parts, even if they have been removed, as St. Jerome emphasizes. If a male has his sexual organ removed, he does not actually become a female. A male eunuch is still a male, as St. Augustine notes. Modern science reveals this view to be accurate. No matter what parts are removed or added, or what other cosmetic changes are made, the biological makeup of a male will always be a male. While females may be more susceptible to passions that rouse the appetitive aspect of the soul and the male to passions which rouse the insensitive aspect, the souls themselves, in essence and energies, are undifferentiated. Moreover, so-called gender reversals in St. Gregory of Nyssa are nothing but an analogical tool. Confessing sexual distinction between souls distorts orthodox anthropology and soteriology. If the souls of men and women differ by energies, which are called the parts of the soul, then they differ by essence. If they differ by essence, then men and women differ by nature. If men and women differ by nature because their souls are of different essences, then the souls of women are not saved, as Christ, being incarnate as a male, would have only healed the soul and nature of the male. But this is absurd. The soul is sexless. Though souls are possessed by male and female human beings, there is no such thing as a female or male soul. The pastor should utilize his understanding of this aspect of orthodox anthropology in his care for individuals with gender dysphoria. Understanding that the modern dichotomy between external bodily sex and internal sex or gender is precluded in orthodox anthropology, he should advise his spiritual children against sex reassignment surgery. Because as Ryan T. Anderson has shown in When Harry Became Sally, 
The clinical evidence disproves enduring long-term health benefits, psychological and otherwise, of sex reassignment surgery. In many cases, those that pursued such cosmetic changes felt worse afterward because their body dysmorphia either remained consistent or increased. The pastor should not deny the reality of the pain and struggle of gender dysphoria, but seek to reorient the locus of identity back to Christ. Though he may not be familiar with gender dysphoria on a personal level, he can understand that deep within every human being lies a tendency to cling to labels or roles to construct personal identity. Many times, the smashing of the idols, so to speak, represents a meaningful, albeit painful, catalyst for personal growth, growth which cannot be attained otherwise. The pastor then will find himself at odds with society on this issue, yet he should not try to change each individual's internal self-perception. Rather, he should lovingly accept them no matter where they find themselves, and by so doing, he will create a relational space wherein true growth can be nurtured. The individual will learn to accept themselves and the unique pain associated with that experience without self-critical judgment or despair, both of which will inhibit individual reception and improvement. Here, the individual struggling with gender dysphoria will encounter what he has never been able to accept within himself, unconditional love, acceptance, and positive regard as he is, not as he wishes to be. Appendix A Reflection on the Human Being as Unity and Plurality The human being is a union of soul and body. The body and soul are distinct, but not separated. When we speak about this union, we apply to it the designation human being. But when we speak about the soul by itself or the body by itself, making there a description or clarification, we do not speak about the whole human being. The human being is body and soul together, not one without the other. Similarly, when we speak of the soul, we do not mean the body, and when we speak of the body, we do not mean the soul. The body and soul are two distinct, yet wholly unseparated aspects of the human being, and they impart to the human being its own distinct properties. When these properties belong to one of these two aspects, they properly belong to the human being, but not to the other aspect. The human being is a material creature because of the body, and an intelligible or spiritual creature on account of the soul. Though the human has an incorporeal aspect, the soul, the body itself is not incorporeal. The properties proper to the soul are proper to the human being, and those which are proper to the body are proper to the human being, but that which is proper to the soul is not proper to the body. In this way, the human being is both unity and plurality, unity on account of his person, which unifies body and soul, and plurality on account of the different essences of body and soul. To continue from above, when we speak of one aspect apart from the other, we make a distinction to show this reality, that man is unity and plurality, a microcosm. When we speak of the human being, proper, we mean body and soul together and all the properties thereof. 
Man is material and spiritual. He is corporeal and incorporeal. He is simple and indivisible and complex and divisible. Since the body and soul were never meant to part, and only do so in the unnatural event of biological death, this distinction, though necessary, has limitations. Furthermore, though this distinction is not division, it becomes division if, when speaking of one aspect, we confuse the two. If that which properly belongs to the soul is called a natural property of the body, or that which belongs naturally to the body is called a natural property of the soul. For in this way, the one is mixed or confused with the other, unified or commingled without the principle of the person. It is the human being that holds these two in tension in himself. The soul is not the body, and the body is not the soul, though the two can affect one another in passion or dispassion. The soul, which moves the body, can be said to participate in the movements and actions of the body, for to the soul belongs free will. Therefore the soul is the accomplice of the body in either passion or virtue, as it moves the body toward each end. To the human being, body and soul together, belongs guilt or praise according to these movements, for the entire human being participates in the passion or virtue according to his will. As such, the human being chooses deification or damnation. Though the soul is not corporeal, it can be dragged down to corporeality by the bodily passions, when the body and soul move in unison toward that pleasurable end. Within man, there is either distinction, and thus union of body and soul, or confusion, and thus division, that is, free will or slavery, to the passions. Division is caused by confusion when the appetite of the body overwhelms the soul so that both move in union towards passion. This is the making of a material soul, though it is only called material colloquially. Distinction and union is the second level, where a space between bodily appetite and reflective soul has developed. The progressive purification of the will, the stage of the gnomic will. The third stage is the opposite of the first. The body moves, almost automatically, together with the soul toward virtue, that is, toward God. The lowest level is division, the second is distinction, and the highest is union, on account of man's union with God. In this last stage, the body is also deified, the opposite of the materialization of the soul. The body becomes spiritual. To call the soul male or female is the division of the soul, and thus the division of the human race, for to distinguish between body and soul in a manner that calls the property of one the property of the other is to divide. The property of the body to the soul is to drag man down to carnal life, but to call the body spiritual is to elevate it, which is to say, to deify it. With deification in Christ, there is neither male nor female, as we read many places, for this division is shaken off. This does not mean the human being is neither male nor female in Christ, but that these divisions have been cast out. This is why the Church Fathers call the soul sexless. 
The body, being sexed, is the principle of sex in the human being. This in no way denigrates sex unless the soul is dragged down to the level of sex by the body's passions, unless this division penetrates even the inner aspect of the man who, on account of his uncontrolled passions, has permanently set himself towards the other in a gross way, like the animals always seeing the other as an object of his pleasure. This is the perversion of will and the perversion of man. Thank you for listening to this Theoria TV production of On Gender and the Soul. You can purchase a physical copy of the book, which includes detailed citations and key quotes in the original Greek and Latin by searching On Gender and the Soul on Amazon.com. If you appreciate our work to provide professional quality orthodox audiobooks free of charge, please consider supporting our work by joining as a member on patreon.com slash or by becoming a member on YouTube.